Howdy. I'm Nolan Gray, Research Director for California Yembe, where we're hard at work making California a more affordable place to live, work, and raise a family. Welcome back to Abundance. In this episode, I chat with Alain Berteau. He's a senior fellow at the NYU Marin Institute for Urban Management and a former principal planner at the World Bank, among many other titles. He's also the author of Order Without Design, a fascinating exploration of the forces that shape cities and a huge inspiration on my work. In the first half of this episode, Alan and I discussed the role of city planning, his optimism about micromobility, and the perils of starting a city from scratch. In the second half of this episode, we discuss his fascinating career, spanning from post-colonial Algeria to post-Soviet Russia. With that, on to the show. So hi, Alan. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Thanks for being part of the original batch. Uh, it's my understanding you were just in Scotland. Yes, yes, it was wonderful. A little wet and cold, but uh, especially for somebody from Marseille, but it's uh, it's nice. <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, right. So, I think there's you know two big buckets here we can we can cover. Maybe your your ideas, and then I think uh, a lot of folks are actually really fascinated uh, by your background, by your history. Um, to my mind, I think some of the elements of order without design that are most fascinating to people are your your little vignettes of your experience being kind of a at all these places and planning history. Um, but I want to sort of cover most folks listening will probably be interested with your main or familiar with uh, your main uh, contributions. Um, but I think uh, when I think of Alain Berthaud thought, the first thing that jumps out is me, I mean, is um, cities as labor markets, right? Uh, so this notion yes, that, that, yes. that cities principally exist uh, because folks are seeking work, and then a lot of urban design implications flow out of that. Do you want to give maybe right. the 5,000-foot view of that for folks who are uh, too lazy to read order without design? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, basically, people go to cities because of the, the other people who are already there. That is, that's why it's so difficult to create new cities, you know, unless there is something like a, a mine or, or a port or something. Because... You, you join a city not because there is a wonderful infrastructure or something like that. You join a city because there are other people you are interested in. So it might be firms which will employ you, might be universities, it might be artists that you want to meet with and be stimulated with. It could be a scientific community, but uh, you are always attracted to people who are already there. And uh, uh, and so that means also that you are going to a very large city, you know, like, like New York or London or, or Shanghai, uh, because you want to meet the, the maximum number of people in a way. And that means that in terms of design, that you have to be able to move through the city very quickly, you know, especially if the city is large. You know, the, the idea that has become kind of fashionable in the last <coughs> three or four years that you could have a 15-minute city, you know, that uh, you, you could have a lot of micro-cities. And uh, uh, it's complete, the, the negation of the large cities, uh, you know, you precisely if you go to a city like New York or London, is to be able to, to meet, you know, to select among the 10 million uh, people who are living there, uh, the one you want to meet. And those people are not, not necessarily and certainly not in your neighborhood necessarily. They are somewhere else. Uh, 
So you have to meet uh, either at a meeting place in the center of the city or in a cafe or something, or 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 at a place of work. So so this mobility within a very large city is very very important. Of course, many planners feel that transport and congestion and, and pollution due to transport is a major issues. So they say, well, we could solve that by matching residents and work or residents and amenities so that you could live in a large city but never go beyond uh, 15 minutes walk from your house. You know, the, this was the, the main uh, slogan of the, the mayor of Paris during the uh, last election and, and it caught actually, people believe that. But it's a negation of a city, you know. So meeting people now, uh, the way people distribute themselves around the city is, I think, the result of a spontaneous order. You know, the the trade-off they will make between consumption of land and floor space, location, uh, you know, to be close to a school or a specific or, or a country club or a tennis court or whatever. It's it's a trade-off that people are making, and they are unpredictable. So, and you have the zoning, you know, the, the regulation uh, should allow this movement of people and, and this trade-off. Now, on the other hand, so you, you have a distribution of people who is spontaneous, who come from the market, who come from the preference of firms and household for a certain location, but. So this should be, you know, it's this spontaneous order. Now, on top of this spontaneous, for this spontaneous order to work, you need a very sophisticated infrastructure, you know, water, sewer, transport, thing like that. And this, unfortunately, is not necessarily provided by market. You know, you need a top-down design. You know, you, you cannot have a, a sewer system for a city like New York or Shanghai, uh, just uh, emerge from uh, from market forces. At a certain point, you have to have an engineer who say, well, how, how are we going to design this sewer system or expand this sewer system? Where are we going to locate the sewage plant? And you need capital for that, by the way. You need to mobilize capital. So this is top down. The problem of planning, I think, is that because this top-down thing exists and engineers are in charge of this top-down infrastructure, sometimes they say, well, uh, we would have a, a better, you know, a cheaper infrastructure system if the population was distributed in a different way. And I think this is a big mistake. You know, you, you, don't, uh, you don't distribute population in a city to optimize a sewer system uh, or, or a water system or a transport system. Uh, the transport system is there to support uh, the way people distribute themselves. And when I say people, I mean firms as, as well as, you know, amenities as well as uh, residents. So this is the essence of this. And, and this is a bit the conundrum, I think, that we have not solved yet. And uh, that's why, when you see uh, people trying to create new cities, I, I'm thinking of uh, Neom in Saudi Arabia, for instance. Uh, the emphasis is not on people. The emphasis is on infrastructure. You know, they tell you, mm -hmm. you could go 175 kilometers, uh, 20 minutes, I think, like that. This is completely irrelevant. You know, it, it's a bit like 
telling you, uh, you know, you will be able to go from Homa to Fargo in 15 minutes, and then you expect that everybody will, will go there. You know, you, you have no, you know, why should you do 175 kilometer uh, in 15 minutes, you know, in 20 minutes? So, so you see, the, the, the question is, in the new cities, how do you attract people, and who are going to be the new people? And that's why usually uh, government will displace a capital are successful because first cost is no object and they can manage, you know, the, 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 the civil servants are obliged to move and they mm -hmm. are the first one. Then of course, you know, like in the case of Brasilia, if you move the capital of a, a, a large and, and uh, large economy like Brazil, uh, Obligatorily, you will have other people who will join because they will provide service for the government or service for the civil servants, and then itself. So that's so. In a way, this is uh, you know the, the the main thing is this again this this contradiction uh, of the top-down design of infrastructure, which has to be done, and then the spontaneous order of the people, the way they distribute themselves in the city. There's a lot in there that um, maybe we can work in reverse order here, right? So, so new cities work, uh, new cities project. Um, you've been highly critical of, of new cities. I mean, as you suggested there, uh, you had a funny line when I interviewed you for the city lab piece, which was like, uh, nobody moves to a city because of the sewer infrastructure, right? Yes. yes. Um, I would say, I think a lot of people do move to Roosevelt Island in New York because they love the trash collection uh system but but i but new york is already there right there's already a city there and people are selecting for yes. a neighborhood yeah. um but you, you do offer some guidance on how to if, if folks are going to undertake a new city's project there are better and worse ways of doing it right yes yes i i think that location first is is important uh so you need to in a new city to have access to trade routes you know somewhere uh to be in the middle of nowhere is tempting because, of course, you have more freedom if you are in the middle of nowhere than if you are not. But say, so you have to create an international airport or a large port. So it's, it's in my opinion, most of the interesting site for a city are already taken. You know, mm. uh, Singapore, Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, Paris too, in a way, London, uh, they are already there. Uh, it's possible now that uh, with global warming, uh, there, are, there might be uh, new cities which will, for instance, uh, if the shorter way between uh, Asia, East Asia and Europe is through the polar route, uh, there might be new cities which will be created there, which could be very, uh, and start with a port, but diversify after that in other things. Uh, I am also rather, strangely enthusiastic about the Belt and Road Initiative of the Chinese. Mm. The Chinese are very good at creating new infrastructure. Basically, they are trying to create a, a, a rail and road infrastructure through Central Asia, in a way recreating the, the Silk Road of the Middle Ages. And it is possible, you know, those countries, are, are many countries in Central Asia are undeveloped but they have a lot of resources, both, both human and, and uh, you know, and mineral. So it's possible that there will be uh, the possibility there of uh, new cities, you know, new hubs, I think. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, the, a city is always a location of something, you know, it's not just an abstract concept. You, you need to be, you know, if you are a city, you need to be linked with the rest of the world. And this is the most costly because you, you cannot have a, a tiny little airport, you know, you, uh, if you want to be linked with the rest of the world, uh, you have to be close to an international airport, practically. Mm -hmm. And that could be justified if you, um, you know, again, if you have uh, resources like minerals or, or you, you become a new trade route, suddenly, uh, you know, you have access to all the population of Central Asia because you are in a certain location. So that's, mm -hmm. that would be a justification. Right, but in yeah, general, they, yeah, in well, general, they... I will advocate fixing the existing cities, which are successful, uh, including, by the way, the way the Chinese are doing now, or, or you find in Asia, because you find that in India too, uh, cluster cities, you know, cities of, uh, again, a labor market of 40, 50 million people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the Chinese are, are uh, really working on that. Huh? If you look at the Pier River Delta that they call now the Greater Bay Area, uh, we are talking now of a population of 90 million people who are going to be, and they are trying to link them again in, in a trip of, you know, where you could go from one area to another in less than one hour. And they are really working on that. I'm, I'm not sure they will succeed, but uh, if they succeed, uh, a, a labor market of, integrated labor market, which is not fragmented, of 90, million people you know it's larger than the population of germany hmm. in one city yeah well i so uh, in, the, in the history of california i think this is interesting because this is this is periodically trotted out in the california context as um yes yes well let's just build some new cities right yes, uh yeah. and sometimes that happens right i mean so yes. you know you have new cities that are i think what you're getting at effectively satellites of of right. existing cities yes. i mean that's that's one way to think of of course, San yes. Jose has a long history, but its its growth is in large part, you know, spillover growth from this the heart of an urban hub, which was San Francisco, or yes, right, yes. likely true to a certain extent of Los Angeles with with Riverside or or San right, Bernardino. Yes, yes right. Um, yeah. But you know, you can go out to the Mojave Desert and you can look at it on Google Maps, and you will see gridded out subdivisions where nothing was built. I mean, California City is a great example of a deliberate attempt to try to create a new city whole cloth. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know far you know outside of the commuter shed of an existing city and you know it's still mostly empty right but, right, but there's yes, this yeah. I, I think you know i mean this is something i'm curious to hear your thoughts on i think there's this temptation to say okay existing cities are they have their problems let's just walk away and build completely new cities you know how do you overcome that how do you say like well no let's focus on fixing a los angeles or or a san francisco well uh you know one of the problem with new cities is that uh you know, infrastructure is lumpy, you know, you, you cannot build a sewer plant for 20 people, you know, so, so if you have a new city, you have to, to create it at least 400,000 people. And so it's very costly. Uh, and you are going to, to build an infrastructure in an area where there are nobody, where in fact, the existing cities are already dense, and usually you could really improve the infrastructure of existing cities and you don't spend the money. You know, one very good example of, of this absurdity is 
uh, Jakarta, you know, the, the government recently decided to displace uh, the capital of Indonesia to, to Borneo, you know, Kalimantan, and in the middle of the jungle there. Uh, so they are going to, and they are already spending hundreds of millions of dollars and, sorry, sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure uh, to where, in fact, Jakarta is des in desperate need of infrastructure. Hmm. Uh, and, and Jakarta, the problem of Jakarta is solvable. I mean, you need to invest, you know, uh, the city is sinking because uh, you, you, uh, most of the water supply comes from deep well. But in fact, there are mountains next to Jakarta which, are, which have plenty of water. So you could bring water from the mountain, around, you know, hmm. from Bandung or somewhere like that. And, and you have plenty of water. Uh, so it's just a question of, um, you know, of investing in infrastructure. Uh, and uh, and so the idea that you invest in an area which is empty, you know, uh, Cairo is a, is the same thing. You know, Cairo is building again a new administrative city. Again, always they think that if we start from scratch, we have a better chance of doing it right. But that means, in a way, uh, starving the existing the, the area which is very dense in Cairo, starving them from infrastructure and investing in the desert. So in the long run. Uh, especially if the government is doing it, they, they have a way, first they have a soft budget constraint, mm -hmm. and uh, so they will do it, but uh, uh, you will end up with, you know, a high inf infrastructure level in, in low-density city, and a high-density city with a defective infrastructure. Hmm. It, it, it strikes me that this is... Um true you know of course it's true all over the world i mean there's always this temptation to build a separate capital city why do you think that right. is i mean almost well, universally right some, of course in the u.s washington dc was a new city right yeah sometimes it's a uh, it's for political reasons i mean in the u.s it was understandable in a way there was kind of a neutrality you know there were there was a lot of competition between the state i think you know they they have they had the feeling of a very strong individuality people from massachusetts or or new york or or, or south carolina so they so they wanted they created a new city so that it would be neutral you know they, mm. it will not be uh, the city you know like Philadelphia or New York will not be neutral. So I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason, for instance, Brasilia was that the, you know, the coast was uh, very largely developed and the interior, which has a lot of resources, was not. So there was a kind of a geopolitical thing to recenter, let's say, uh, development toward the interior. Whether it was a good idea or not, I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, Chandigarh, for instance, where I work, the, the capital of Punjab, so it's not the national capital, but the regional capital, was there also, it was a political, you know, at the partition of India, the, the capital of, of Punjab was Lahore, but it turned up on the Pakistani side. So you had a large state, which which has no main city, practically. So they, mm -hmm. so, so politically, yes, I think it was a good idea. I mean, I... I not argue with that 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 you have to create a new capital but say in the case of jakarta it's clearly uh we messed up this city let us try again and i think that's not the right attitude 
Okay. So interesting distinction. So you're right there. There might be, there might be political reasons for creating a new city to deal with maybe compromises or to deal with broader political objectives. Right. So in the case of Brazil, you're trying to settle a region. Um, But if you're just building a new city because you don't want to fix the problems of your existing capital city, that's probably not the best reason in the world to build a city. To to answer that, for instance, one city which I think has been extremely successful was Shenzhen in China. Mm. And Shenzhen, few people understand how it was created. You know, Deng Xiaoping decided... Uh, you know, he wanted to experiment with market, including for the first time labor market. You know, labor market didn't exist in in Mao China. You, when uh, you you graduate from high school or, or university, you were allocated a job by the by the state. You have no choice, and you will stay there all your life unless you have a a powerful relative who could move you to another sector, maybe high paying. But but normally you will. Li- uh, you live your entire life in the same company. And uh, so, and Deng Xiaoping has the idea that labor markets were important. He, under, he understood what the, the power of labor markets because he realized that a lot of people are misallocated, you know, in, in terms of skills because of, and so he created, uh, and he knew also that Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong Chinese had a lot of skills that we are missing. Uh, in China, you know, like, like uh, accountant, uh, you know, financial people who understand real finance and all that. So the idea was to have a city, by the way, very well located, very close to Hong Kong. You know, you could commute from Hong Kong. At the same time, it has a, a potential for a deep port. It has no port, but uh, uh, it was a deep, uh, deep water port, which was natural there. And, and then he put a perimeter around there, and in this perimeter, he told enterprise and he told workers, within this perimeter, uh, enterprise can hire whoever they want at the salary they want, and they can fire them too. And, uh, and they don't have to provide housing if they don't want to. You know, because before every, you know, because you stay all your life in the same company, company provided housing and for you. And, and so, so suddenly what was interesting is that uh, not only enterprise moved there and the proximity of Hong Kong also helped them, you know, to, to set up those companies, but enormous amount of workers came from all over China to work there, they decided that they had rather run their chance on their own skill rather than stay in the same enterprise all their life in the same job. Hmm. And and you see that by, uh, you know, now in Shenzhen, although it's an area where uh, the region of Cantonese is a main language, in Shenzhen, you have a majority of people speaking Mandarin because that's a lingua franca from the people who came from all over China, not hmm. not from the Guangzhou area. You know, so so it was uh, so it was the success of, uh, and then after uh, because this labor market worked well, and company then started uh, being used to pay people, you know, increase salary not because of seniority but because of skills. Uh, then this spread uh, little by little in the rest of China, and this is what you have in China now. Well, uh, so you sorry. see, uh, th- so that was yeah, a sorry. success story. Uh, 
uh, and the city created because first location was important you know if they had put it the city in the gobi desert uh, it would not have worked um, you know th there was a by the way, the airport of Hong Kong and the airport of Guangzhou, which were two main airports, you know, on both sides. Huh? So, so there was a, a very good location, but then a perimeter, you know, a change. So it, it, in a way, it was a bit like a charter city, uh, you know, where you change the law within the perimeter, you, you change, uh, you know, the way things work. And, and, you know, to go from no, no labor market to a labor market is an enormous, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. For, for the Chinese, that was fantastic. They never heard of something like that. Well, but so they were for, for for Shenzhen, there there are two things that are working there. There's the right location, right, which yes. is you're you're sort of riding on the Hong Kong labor market. Yes, um, and, and then Guangzhou, yes, in yes. Guangzhou, and there's also this experiment in governance that's being run, right? So right. they're saying we're yes. gonna we're gonna have dramatically different labor market rules here. Um, yeah, this is another, I think. The idea that is seems to float around is like startup cities or charter cities. Uh, this notion being like, let's, you know, so one of the issues in many developing countries is maybe the court systems are not amenable to investment or gotcha. labor market rules prevent uh, growth or, or or change. And so, you know, some folks have proposed, well, let's just let's start new cities with subject to new uh, uh, rules on, on, you know, having to do yes, contracts yes. or labor. Yeah. Uh, what do you what do you what do you make of that? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think that uh, this makes sense if you can manage to uh, to have these rules, uh, you know, let's say uh, survive a you know when they were attempting Honduras and they are still attempting Honduras to create new cities and Honduras is not known for good governance, but then it's even more tempting to say, well, let's put an enclave with good governance. Uh, there's always a temptation by if the, the government, which do not have a very good governance, see that something is relatively successful in terms of real estate, to put their hand on it. Mm. And that's the end of the experiment. You know, mm. they, 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 they try to cash on it. And uh, so uh, usually I think a shorter city maybe should be really, the initiative should come from the, the national government itself rather than from outside proposing it. And, uh, you know, I think that would be more credible. In a way, you could say that, uh, you know, city like Dubai or Abu Dhabi, where, you know, they, they are enclave which are shorter cities within uh, Dubai. They had... You know, they had the location, by the way, at when the, the first airport were created there, uh, to go from Europe to India or, or Asia in general, you had to stop refueling in Tehran. You know, most of my first uh, work in India, I will always stop, you know, that was in the 70s. Uh, our plane leave from Frankfurt to London and refuel in Tehran. Then came the, so Tehran was, was a big city with a lot of skills. It could have been a fantastic hub, except that the, the, the Islamic revolution came there and it was nearly impossible to do business there. So, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi suddenly were about the same distance as Tehran from Europe and, and India, you know, and, and the East. And they took over the, the, but after that, of course, most flights uh, can go directly, you know, from Europe to India or 
even to Hong Kong, mm. but they still remain, you know, they created, you know, it's a bit like, uh, like uh, the area canal for New York. Uh, it created a, a fantastic access, and then, of course, now it's completely irrelevant. And I think that's what happened with Dubai and Abu Dhabi. They, mm -hmm. And they were smart enough to create an enclave where the rules were different. You know, uh, for instance, um, access to alcohol or, or you know, more liberal uh, liberalism also in terms of finance, you know, to be relatively serious about finance, you know, not... Mm. Uh, not to, so, so those were little enclave, you know, that, that uh, uh, Saudi Arabia didn't do it. You know, they, they were, you know, in a way they had more resources, but they didn't do it. Well, that, that's a funny thing now, right? Because I, so one of, one of your, one of your uh, maybe qualities of a successful new cities project is there's some new uh, opportunity for resource extraction or transportation. And so right, yes, I think yes. what you're right, what you're getting at with Dubai or, or, or UAE or even uh, uh, cutter is they recognize like oh okay air the air travel is shifting and there are more of these long haul flights and they need to refuel and and so of course they sort of seize on that opportunity yes right um, yeah. but it's funny because I think now right Saudi Arabia is trying to basically mimic that success with this I can't remember where exactly it is but the huge airport uh, project but you know it's it it almost feels to me like kind of missing the point right like dubai yes. tapped into that because dubai was the first mover dubai right, yes. Yes. you know saw an opportunity and quickly did. You know, there's not a there's not just a a market for airports on the arabian peninsula right like right, there yes, was an yes, opportunity right, for yeah. one really big one right yeah one big one yes 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 yeah like a you know you wouldn't say to colorado springs hey colorado springs you just need an airport like denver and you'll be, a, you know, you'll have all that growth the same way. Yes. Like, no, there was opportunity for one, and Denver did it, right? Yeah. Yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. You you cannot have uh, too many large airports close together. I mean, it's, uh, yes. Uh, so so the opportunity is, uh, I mean, the, the, is there. But, uh, uh, and uh, what, what's interesting with Dubai Airport also is that they became very, very efficient in running their, you know, uh, their connection to Asia, to the point that if you fly now to a, relative, a secondary town in India, not, not Mumbai or Delhi, but say Ahmedabad or, or Bangalore, you are better off flying to Dubai and then from Dubai to Bangalore or Dubai to Ahmedabad, then fly directly to Mumbai and then take a, a local flight to Ahmedabad or Bangalore. Because uh, Dubai Airport is far more efficient than Mumbai Airport. Hmm. I, I'm not going to make many friends here in India, but uh, <laughs> let's. I mean, Mumbai Airport has improved, I must say, the last few years. But uh, but you know, the the again here it was running something a bit different and very efficiently. Then they they capture a market and they may remain in this market even if if Mumbai. Become extremely efficient as a distributor, as a hub. Uh, it's possible that the advantage that Dubai has is uh, will remain for many years. Yeah, you know, it's something I find really refreshing in your work. I think within so much of planning, there's a temptation to look at the same few Western European contexts, or, or you know, yes. I think planners planners very comfortable talking about maybe Copenhagen or or Paris. Yes, yes, yeah, um, Amsterdam. Yes, yeah, or Amsterdam, right? Um, but you know your work is is so rich with examples from you know uh, of course the global south the far east you know and and I think to my mind uh, I always think to myself I 
you know, Tokyo and, and Hong Kong are probably better comps for a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco than a city yes. like Amsterdam or, or Copenhagen, right? I mean, the, there's a lot to be learned from those cities, but in terms of building yes, a major yeah. world metropolis, uh, yeah. East Asia seems to have solved a lot of those <laughs> yes, planning yes, problems yes. better. Yes. You know, the, the, uh, what I, I feel that uh, all cities have the same physiology, like human beings, you know, we are all the same physiology, but we have, of course, different culture and different history, which make us different. But we have the same physiology. And I think that all cities in the world, whether it's Dakar or New York or Copenhagen, have the same physiology. But mm -hmm. we have different history. And that gives opportunity. Uh, one of the main important things in cities is be able to change, to change fast, to adapt to shocks. You know, which come from outside, change in economy, change in, in technology. And I think that Asia have been more, you know, give more example of drastic changes. You know, like Shenzhen, for instance, where you, you have a, a little port cities under a communist system and, and suddenly it become a hub of capitalism and it goes from 50,000 people to what now uh, 17 million, I think, uh, uh, in Shenzhen, uh, you know, in, in a few years, where uh, in Europe, Europe is, is interesting because they are, they are you know, the, the city of Europe are what I would call well-oiled machine, you know, they, they, they are well, well managed in general. Uh, in, and uh, so, it, but they are not moving very fast, you know, they, they have reached, let's say, a, and they, they perfect certain things, uh, but uh, uh, they do not move very fast. You know, Copenhagen is a, is a city of one million. I mean, it's at a world scale, this is a, a little, you know, neighborhood. I mean, it, it's a small neighborhood. Um, so it's not, uh, you know, we can learn certain things, certainly from Copenhagen or, or Amsterdam, but uh, it's it's a little quaint, I would say. Hmm. Well, I mean, just right. You know, if if you're like take uh, I you know take the Bay Area, right? San Francisco, yes, San Jose, yeah. Oakland Bay Area. Um, right. To my mind, the best comp for that region is probably the Pearl River Delta in terms of building out this right, yeah. large integrated uh, metropolis that has right, great yes. transit and, and great right, integrated yeah. facilities. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, but that's a good point that, I mean, they're, they're essentially neighborhoods in world cities. So in terms of the urban design of my neighborhood, I probably want it to look more like a Copenhagen or an Amsterdam. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But the structure, the overall structure should be more like the, the, the Pirival Delta. Mm. That's interesting. Um, and, I, and I, by I, the way, the two are completely compatible. You know, hmm. I I am not you know well. I am uh, you know I'm a big fan of uh, the the development of cluster cities in 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 China, but I'm not a big fan of their new urban design. You know, hmm. I think they are uh, they 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 miss the scale there completely because they they give a very large chunk of land to develop to only one developer, uh, and it's you know we get back to in suburbs to to the Corbusier idea of tower in the park because it's convenient to do that. You know, you, you have one standard plan and you know to do it. And, and, and it's, not, uh, uh, it's, not that it's not very pleasant for the people who live there. You know, they may have a 
comfortable home which works well which you know well heated or but uh, you know at the end don't forget you have to meet people uh you you have to have uh, and and the urban design could destroy your possibility of meeting people mm. you know in bad urban design maybe the maybe the right That's compromise can, here yeah yeah so so uh, i'm not saying by the way that you should imitate the street of paris or amsterdam but there might be different way of doing it uh, and that's why it's so important to have very flexible land use regulation so mm -hmm. people who are innovative you know in the context of say los angeles uh, do not reconstruct montmartre in the middle of Mont uh, los angeles but find something which will be the modern equivalent of montmartre in uh, in the 21st century mm -hmm. Well, it, it strikes me that, that maybe Tokyo is, is the good compromise here, right? I mean, yes, so Tokyo yes, is this large I, integrated region with like pretty high quality, this granular urbanism that I think uh, you right, yes. and which is folks would like to see. Very pleasant, yes, 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 mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. And it's well, a large integrated labor market, you know, that's right. the, 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 the system of transport. Uh, maybe a little too radio-concentric still because it was, you know, uh, by the way, I, I seldom uh, uh, quote my original country as an example. Uh, there is an interesting example in Paris now of creating a subway from suburb to suburbs, you know, outside the Paris. And uh, so they are adding 200 kilometers of subway, uh, which for, you know, again, a, a city which has been relatively stagnant, I mean, it's an historical thing. It's, and it's a really new, if you look at most of the subways in, uh, in Europe, they are radio-concentric, you know, they, mm. you know, you have a center with very high level of amenities, you know, the, like London or Stockholm, and, and send the, the, the subway radio, and then the, here it seems that Paris has decided to link suburb to suburb with the subway. And it's possible because, by the way, the immediate suburbs have relatively high densities. Huh? They, are, mm -hmm. they have densities around uh, between 60 or 200 people per hectare, which is about three or four times Los Angeles. Although mm -hmm. it's, it, the French consider it a suburb, but it's three or four times the density of Los Angeles. Hmm. Well, I guess a similar project is underway with the Purple Line, right, in DC, connecting rather dense right, yes, suburban. Yeah. That's right, yeah, 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 right, yeah. That would be interesting to see if, again, the, the, the density will allow it or, or if the regulation will allow the density to respond to the new accessibility. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a maybe a superficial reading of a lot of your work of just highly critical of a lot of, for example, land use regulations. But, yes. uh, you know, reading, of course, there's a very clear role for the planner in your framework. And I'm kind of curious, how's the reaction been among practicing planners, among former colleagues? How's the reaction been to some of these ideas? So far, I mean, in my work, I think those ideas were relatively well accepted. Hmm. Uh, but it takes time to percolate, you know, ideas percolate, you know, they, they take time to adapt an idea to an existing city, it takes time. Then there is the gut reaction of, uh, uh, you know, trying to pigeonhole you in a 
uh, in the ideological bag, you know, I, uh, some reaction to my book is, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm what, what the French call, uh, the, the European will call an ultra-liberal, you know, kind of, uh, you know, just uh, quoting Adam Smith is considered to be reactionary or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, and so, the, also there's uh, the, the more traditional planners, uh, you know, by the way, when my book was published, uh, the, the manuscript was reviewed by planners and economists, and all the planners who reviewed it tenet, you know, and even recommended MIT Press not to publish it. Uh, because they felt, uh, they felt offended, they, uh, they felt that, uh, uh, you know, look at, for instance, um, UNESCO uh, heritage, you know that they put cities like Brasilia or Le Havre, you know, which was built after the war in the heritage. And the only reason they put it as heritage, not because it works well, not because it's beautiful, not because it provides uh, affordable housing, they, they they, they considered that heritage only because it was one of the few times where a master plan was followed integrally. Hmm. And so it's not the quality, the fact that you do a blueprint and during 20 years you implement your blueprint, the planners would decide on the UNESCO, you know, the UNESCO criteria for, for uh, consider that the fact that you implemented the plan in itself is a quality that should be rewarded. <laughs> Whether this yeah. plan is good or bad, doesn't matter. Right. Um, I, I want to, so we, we received some questions from folks who are fans of your work, uh, and I want to quickly run a few by you here. So the first is um, micromobility. So in, in the tail end of your book, yes. I think you, you raise a couple of things that you're thinking about. Uh, one of which is micromobility. And of course, over the last few years, there's been an explosion of sales in electric scooters and electric yes, bicycles. Yes. Um, have you changed your view on that at all? Uh, what should plan how should planners be thinking of it? What you know, where are you at on that uh, now? Yeah, I think I think that uh you know, it has you know I I was very interested at the time when I wrote the book by uh Toyota, you know, they had a uh, it was called an e-road, which was kind of a scooter, I mean, a scooter in the European sense, I mean, a motorcycle, let's say, uh, enclosed motorcycle, uh, with, uh, uh, which allow you to, by the way, not to put your foot down when you stop at a traffic light. Mm. You know, it, it, it keeps its balance by itself. So I think it's an important feature there for the user. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and the idea was, and I am not sure now what what is the status. Say they, they were testing it in the suburb of of Tokyo, as a as a complement for you know you arrive with your subway at the station, and then you take one of these micro mobility thing to go to your house, mm. and you keep it at your house, and the next morning you bring it back to the station. Mm. Um, and you pay with your credit card, you know, a credit card, or you could have. And I think that this uh, more and more we, I see the micro mobility as a complementary, you know, complement to a large, uh, you know, heavy heavy rail or heavy uh, uh, transit system. Mm. 
you know, instead of uh, having, say, uh, the, the traditional thing to have a, a subway, heavy rail, and buses to uh, which feed in any way, the, uh, th this is very inconvenient. You need to go from a, a collective system of transport in order to move a massive number of people on long distance. But then when you arrive, I won't say even the last mile, but the last two or three miles, uh, it, it should be probably a micro-mobility system. And which allow you to go right, you know, first to take it immediately when you arrive, which, you know, the, the supply should match the demand in, in time. You know, that's a problem with a bus waiting for you at a subway station, is that the bus, you have to wait for the bus. Mm -hmm. uh, and the frequency of the bus, you, you know, if you are at midnight or 11 o'clock at night, uh, probably you will have to have to wait half an hour for a bus. This is not a good system. Mm -hmm. So, so the micro mobility will allow you to uh, to have that, or also, of course, there is a possibility. But now I think that uh, the the second thought about the the small scooters is that this seems to be relatively dangerous. But the, the idea that you carry your scooter, you know, is foldable and you carry it with you and you bring it to your office. So then you match completely uh, supply and demand. You know, that, that's why the car is so attractive uh, mm. in many countries, that you have a complete match of supply and demand. So mm. it's very costly in terms of land use, it's costly in terms of pollution, congestion, it's not efficient. But, um, <coughs> you know, when, when I used to teach at NYU and uh, I, uh, I finished my class at 10, 10.30 after talking with the students, uh, it was nice to have my car waiting in a garage and driving back home rather than uh, wait for, for a bus every hour to bring me back home uh, at the mm. Port Authority. You know, that's for me that, you know, that was matching supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Right, right. The, transportation exactly when you want it, right? Um, yes. I, I mean, it, it, it does, it, it seems to me too that another issue that, that, um, electric micromobility is solving is uh, you you characterize street design and to a certain extent transportation planning as a real estate problem right yes, you know yes, cars okay. take up a certain yeah. amount of space right and yes, for yeah. the most part overwhelmingly just are moving around one person yes um, right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. particularly here in the US where cars are just getting longer and larger yes, uh, yes, and, and yes. taking up more space and being more dangerous electric micromobility you know actually allows you to much more efficiently use street space potentially right yes 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 and and those that's why also in a way you could advocate uh, to have to have a system of transport where you have this mixed use you know micro mobility combined with subway or heavy rail or whatever uh, uh, rather than uh, either it's micro mobility or it's heavy rail you see mm -hmm. I think this and unfortunately I cannot find many I don't find actually any example in the world where uh, a, a bus company or a subway company, transport company, is really interested in, uh, in coordinating with another mode of transport. Usually they consider them the enemy. You know, in, in India, where uh, you know, many people now take, for instance, in Mumbai, they take subways, uh, the, the train, the, the you know, suburban train, 
and then they take a rickshaw after that uh, to go home because the station is not close to their home and the the railway station the railway engineers always fight to to make the life as difficult as possible to the rickshaw they can't see there the rickshaw create congestion where in fact the rickshaw are, are there precisely for their own client you see so that this thing is is a terrible thing that not to and i think that one of the advantage of the chinese now in the bay area is uh, is a greater bay area you know the Delta is that they are conceiving specifically uh, to to complement uh, you know to have one or two or even three mode of transport in one trip, but which are really coordinated to the point where you uh, you know you take one to another in order to get to your home at the end. Mm -hmm. See the the question is uh, availability you know the. But uh, you know supply and demand when you want it. But it's also if you have micro mobility, you on micro mobility you use the entire road network. If you have a bus, you know a, a scheduled bus, you use only one tenth of the network. Hmm. Uh, you know a subway even less. Uh, so so you the advantage you know. The entire network is used. You know, you have houses uh, along the entire network of roads, and so you you have to have a system of efficient uh, system of transport, which use uh, you know which give access to the entire network. That's why, for instance, Hanoi. Uh, I don't know if it's still that way now, but it's so efficient because a motorcycle not only give access to the formal road network. But also footpaths in the countryside, so you end up villages were really part of the housing supply because they are accessible by motorcycle, and everybody using motorcycle. So, so you see, you you have here an access on a on a dirt footpath. Let's say for the last two or three kilometers, your motorcycle can handle a dirt footpath very well. It's funny that so many of the things that you you point to to try to understand right motorcycles rickshaws or uh, or tuk tuks um, yeah. uh, or, or not mentioned here but you know the folks who essentially engage in on street parking management right uh, who who will who will charge you small amounts of money for parking on street you know it, it, these are all sort of like these <coughs> phenomena that are just or or, or street vendors right. Yes, uh, right, yeah. These are all these phenomena that are, are, are viewed as, you know, signs of disorder that emerge yes. and, and are treated yeah, almost yeah. as nuisances. Um, but I think what I like about your, your frame is that you, it helps you to understand why these things emerge. Why, why does this happen? Right. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. In, in not necessarily exactly, a judgmental yeah. way. And if you actually, right, yeah, yeah. you know, if you view something as an issue, like there's a way to solve it beyond just sort of criminalizing that particular behavior uh, right, yes, you, yes. Know, you probably have a more systemic problem going on, right? Right, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, actually, on, on micromobility, my first uh, hint that this could work was, uh, you know, at the time uh, of uh, the Olympic game in, in China, uh, they, uh, it, they, they expanded the, the subway to the north very much. So I, I took the subway to the terminal, and then I realized that there were those motorcycles were waiting 
for, you know, there were buses at the terminal, but there were also those motorcycles that I, I put a picture in my book, actually. Those, my, my Chinese colleague told me, wait a minute, but those are illegal. You know, they, they are doing it. We tolerate them, but they are illegal. You are not supposed to do that. But, and I realized that the people in the subway were called, you know, they had their own motorcyclist uh, as a customer. They were calling them saying, I'm arriving at the station in half an hour. Could you wait for me there? And then they had to drive directly from the station to the door of their apartment, you know, where there were buses, but they were nearly, the buses were not even <laughs> half occupied because the buses will leave every 15 minutes or 20 minutes and, and they will not use the whole uh, road network. They will go on somewhere and you'll still have probably another two, one or two kilometers to walk. So, <laughs> so those spontaneous things tell you about demand, you know, again, this spontaneous order. And, uh, and then you have to analyze them. So sometimes they create, you know, they, because they are spontaneous, sometimes they can create havoc, they can pollute, they can do something. But it's up to you to integrate them, to understand that uh, this demand is legitimate and you have to take it seriously. The same with the uh, minibuses in, in Africa in particular, uh, where you have those uh, very small buses, you know, with 10, 15 passengers. And they are much more flexible than the large buses, of course. Of, uh, because, and they, they shift itinerary depending on demand. And to a certain extent, they use a much larger part of the road network than, than, the, formal, uh, than the formal transport system. Hmm. So you, we have to learn from that. And the fact that sometimes, you know, in particular in South Africa at the same time, those different uh, small bus companies were fighting each other with Kalashnikov, you know. So people say, we have to stop them. No, I mean, clearly we have to stop them from fighting for clients by, by killing each other. But as a transport system, it's a very interesting means and it corresponds to demand. Hmm. <laughs> <coughs> Right. Um, so uh, another question we got, uh, work from home, remote work. Uh, should, should cities be worried about that? Is that an existential threat to cities? I don't think so. Uh, you know, cities, it's a work market, but it's also amenities. The fact, uh, you, you have to meet, you know, you meet people. Uh, I think the most interesting meetings are usually when they are, uh, random meeting, you know, uh, or let's say random encounter. Uh, and, uh, well, you remember the first time we met was in a restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, right? And it was because we had a common friend who told me, hey, this guy is interesting, you should talk with him. Uh, and uh, so, in a way, it was a random, you know, we were not connected by work, you know, if we were all on remote work, we would never met, by the way, hmm. uh, probably. Uh, so I think that we, we need this. Uh, now, some people will, will manage to work remotely from anywhere. Um, that's the case from my daughter, for instance. So she's uh, working from Charleston for a company in Sacramento. And she's very happy with it. And she has no intention. She changed job already twice, always remote. Uh, 
she's happy with the environment in, in Charleston and, and she has no intention of moving to any uh, big cities uh, outside Charleston. So, but I think that it's a small, uh, it's a nature of her job. It's also because uh, she's already in uh, a little more than mid-career. So she has a network, she has a skill. Uh, I don't think it would be a good idea for a a young person, you know, a person who is much younger, um, and uh, you know, who is looking for more opportunity of changing maybe job or or evolving and things like that. I mean, personally, uh, you know, my background is architecture and and planning, but basically design, and uh, I really discover economics. Uh, by working at the World Bank, by meeting people in the cafeteria. And uh, so it was also random meeting people who knew things that I didn't know, but I think were complementary to what I, I knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I, I learned a lot about economics just by meeting people uh, in the bank. But mm -hmm. if we have been remote in the bank, I would have met other urban planners probably, or, or my boss will tell me what to do, but I will not have uh, had this opportunity of uh, learning things on my own, you know, by, again, meeting people in the cafeteria. That's, that's when you learn things. Well, I think this is exactly right, that it, being in person is uniquely important early in your career, maybe when yes, you're building a yes. network and you're developing certain soft skills. But this is a concern I have is that maybe the folks who make these decisions over how long you're going to stay remote, they benefit potentially less from being in person, uh, but, you know, to the extent that, that the pipeline of talent maybe dries up or, or, or the talent or the capabilities of, of newer employees uh, is permanently lowered by remote work. They, there's a harm there, but they might not immediately feel it uh, in the way that younger staff might. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. And then there's socializing. I mean, uh, you know, I, my wife and I, we moved uh, in the, you know, we moved to the United States, uh, what, 56, 57 years ago. And uh, uh, we didn't know anybody, you know. We didn't have buddies from high school. We didn't have uh, from college there. We didn't have any relative. All the friends we have, and we have many friends in the United States, all came from work. Or, or friend of friend, you know, in, in our case, for instance, it's a friend of friend. Uh, and, uh, but so socializing is also mostly work, although I, I understand that you can also socialize on the internet, you, you know, but eventually you have to meet in person. Mm -hmm. Well, but this is a, this is a, maybe a great distinction here, right? Like, I don't think I ever would have asked you to join for this interview if you and I maybe hadn't had a cup of coffee or never had dinner or hadn't got to know each other, at least to some <laughs> extent, right. in person. And That's it was much right. more of a comfortable thing to say, hey, Alain, you want to join for this? Of course, it, it's, there, you know, there's no justification or, or, or sort of transaction costs associated with us working together on, on a whole bunch of different things, right? That's right, yes. And, you know, a conversation in, again, around a coffee, uh, or a dinner, uh, or a glass of wine, uh, is uh, uh, you know, is much more random, and you you test a bit what the other person, you know, 
we could have had a meeting saying, uh, Alan, what do you think about parking, you know, uh, regulations? And and so we could have just talked about parking regulation and then we'll have left. And probably we'll have never seen each other again, except, you know, you'd say, oh, we are toward this idea about parking. And, but if you meet uh, in a social, you know, again, in a cafe or something like that, then you, you test other things of interest, you know. Mm -hmm. Where have you been? Ah, you, uh, you know, you, you come from Kentucky, you know, ah, that's, that's a different, you know, that's a, uh, a and, uh, you know, so you, you bring the different things like that, you know, you can explore, you can test uh, other people's ideas. And uh, I think it's indispensable. It seems now, when I read the, the paper, I seem that the big employers want people to come back to the office, but many workers are reluctant to do it. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they feel more comfortable to... Uh, I don't know how long it will last, and I think there will be a sorting of people who already have a network and have a, a job which they feel are comfortable doing, and will stay on online, but I think it will be a you know maybe fifteen twenty percent, and then of course there will be the one who instead of commuting every day you know uh, from uh, <coughs> eight to six uh, will have a much more flexible, and that will be better for everybody because mm -hmm. uh, you know especially I remember the, the last years I was at the bank I thought that. Uh, uh, being at the bank every day has a very high cost uh, to, uh, you know, in terms of uh, losing time in meetings and, uh, you know, they, there's an overhead in, in being in, an, in a large office. Um, yeah, right. Uh, um, I mean, I think it remains to be seen, right, how long or how much work from home will remain maybe when labor market conditions change. Right? Yes. Don't, uh, don't forget that X extreme, uh, then the labor market become worldwide. You know, the, the, you, you are not competing with somebody from uh, Colorado or, or, or Charleston, but you are competing with somebody in the Philippines or, or Buenos Aires. Hmm. Uh, and that, uh, I still think that, uh, the type of work you can do remotely like that is limited unless the person in Buenos Aires is part of a network also, which is, you know, and, and then that's possible too, you know, but then that means that this person in Buenos Aires is in Buenos Aires and, and is meeting a lot of people and then getting ideas from these other people and then fitting it to their network in New York or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that being the research director for a housing policy center will be resilient to a remote outsourcing, but uh, it remains <laughs> yes. to be seen, right? Yes, um, yes. Another question we got was uh, examples of, of maybe metros or cities in the developing world that are doing housing policy especially well. Um, anything spring to mind? <coughs> I, I still... Uh, um... You know, I, the, the only real example that I have seen on the long term is, uh, is Indonesia, you know, with the Kampung thing, where uh, they, and in the, in the new, when, when the cities expand, I'm not talking about Jakarta necessarily, but Surabaya and all the cities which have, you know, some are more successful with Kampung than others, 
but basically they are saying uh, let for the lowest income group let them consume as little land and as little floor space as they want we will provide them a basic infrastructure at this you know we will subsidize their basic infrastructure and this costs much less than building public housing or doing sites and services and things like that it allows people to uh, to make a trade-off between where they want to live and how much they want to consume and I think it's very successful. And what is amazing is that it has been the policy of the government, I think now over 30, maybe 40, 35 years. Uh, although, you know, there have been a change of regime in Indonesia, you know, from dictatorship, now it's, uh, now it's a democracy. But uh, the, the policy has stayed steady. So some cities have been more successful in implementing it than others. I am not sure why I don't, you know, one example of very successful is Surabaya, but say Jakarta was successful too. But Surabaya was particularly successful. And that would be interesting. Once I remember uh, there was as a NBR uh, conference in, in Boston, uh, there was a, uh, there was a, a scholar who had present, you know, he, he was considering that uh, a, a city which which has a very strict standard like you know zoning give that it you know you have to buy a ticket in order to uh, you have to 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 have a fee a starting fee in order to have a house and then uh, if you are in a city which allow informal housing <coughs> then you can have a house without buying your ticket you know you just you just spend whatever you want on it and in fact, uh, <coughs> the the system in in Indonesia is that you allow whoever wants not to have a ticket, you know, like to not to have a, a, an entry fee, and uh, and it works relatively well because you know some people say, but it will be terrible. Then every, everywhere will be a slum. Not so. You know, there are people who are quite happy to be in a in a residential development with regular street where the, the houses are aligned and uh, you know that's so it's not that um, you know everything become informal it's just uh, you know you you have an adjustment for the people and and you can see also the evolution you know the the amount of uh, money the people in, invest in their house as soon as they have uh, uh, they have a, a tenure you know they have a guarantee of security of tenure it's by the way in the in the in the Kampong in Indonesia, you do not have a formal tenure in the sense that you know survey and the is a, a cadaster or something. But your uh, you know the the bill you pay for water, uh, which has an address, is a form of tenure. And practically, when you see transaction, it doesn't uh, degrade the value of your property because mm. your only title is that you you have paid your electricity your your electricity or, or water bill for ten years. Hmm. Right. And then once you have some sort of proof of tenure, a lot of other things become possible, right? Right. Yes, yes, yes. But in uh, th there was an interesting article some years ago in New York saying that the only affordable housing in large quantity which was created was, in fact, the informal subdivision in Queens and some part of Brooklyn 
of uh, individual houses, mm -hmm. which were illegally subdivided, which had a cost because then, uh, you know, when you subdivide, you have to build uh, two or three kitchen. And then, of course, you may have a fire hazard because you do it illegally. You, you do not have a, an electrician who is licensed to do it. And uh, so you have a cost for that. It will be much better just to allow it. That's it. And uh, uh, and and then that's that created, in fact, affordable housing, including, by the way, garages, which were rented to one family and things like that. And and but it was illegal. Uh, where I think those things, you know, should be studied. You know, a, a bit like. Uh, you know the the micro mobility, uh, informal micro mobility. It should be studied and then see the advantages of doing this. And well, it was it was a similar dynamic in California. Uh, ADUs were already extremely common and an important source yes. of affordable housing, but they because they were illegal under the zoning, they weren't regulated pursuant to building code standards. Yes, and right. so you know I think one of the big successes is just legalizing that and saying. You know, it's legal to build these subject to basic health and safety inspections. And, right, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. you know, of course, you still, you don't cut off that supply of affordable housing, but you just make sure that it's, it's, right, it's yeah. safe and, and it a basic has a, way. a safety. For instance, uh, in, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, uh, it's legal to sublet a room in your, your individual house. And because it's, it's legal, you can build a little staircase on the side to access mm -hmm. this room on the first floor. And hmm. so in terms of uh, fire hazard and things like that, it's uh, suddenly you solve it. And certainly if you have your own access, uh, it increases slightly the, the value of rental. So people are, you know, a staircase, an outside staircase is not very expensive. So, uh, so you see it, it increases the value of the house if you have uh, a separate entrance and it solves the problem of uh, the fire hazard. And, uh, you know, if you have two or three of those with only, one staircase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think can... the issue there is it. it the, I think this offends maybe cultural sensibilities of oh, you know, this is not yes. a neighborhood where you subdivide the home or where you have borders. Right. Or... Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's uh, you know, <coughs> what I call closing the door after you. You know, people come to a neighborhood when it's new; they're happy to be there, and after that, they close the door. This, uh, you know, that's a uh, the problem of the migrants in a lot of countries, you know, they come as migrants and then after two or three generations, they close the door. Right. Or, or, or the, uh, the first wave gentrifier moves in uh, yes. and then uh, wants to block any new, any, the second wave of gentrifiers, right? <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> More yeah, so yeah. than anyone who'd actually yeah. live there. Well, basically, a lot of people who are, who are happy with their life don't want change. Yeah. You know, the one, the one won't change are the one who are looking for something different. Well, this, this strikes me as a really a foundational problem uh, yeah, for especially problem, yeah. uh, how do you how do you overcome, you know, because I, I think there are legitimate concerns with change, right? Folks are worried about additional traffic or additional stress right, on public yeah. services. And then there are potentially less legitimate concerns of, well, I just aesthetically, I like how this neighborhood looks or I don't want a certain type of person coming in. Right. I mean, how do you how do you overcome that? That to, that to me strikes me as a really, really foundational problem. For I think I think we I think we have to get back to property rights, you mm -hmm. know, to in a way, I think we have an extension in in Western Europe. Uh, and even more in the United States, that uh, because of the zoning law, 
and all sorts of environmental law, your property rights within the boundary of your property are extremely limited. Uh, you know, and but on the other hand, your property rights are expanding to your neighbors, but it's a negative property right. You can prevent your neighbors from doing a lot of things, mm -hmm. but you have more limited rights in your own within your boundary. And I think we have to get back to to property rights within your boundary, so you are able to do things. Uh, which are non-conventional because maybe this non-conventional thing could be are very good. Maybe they are bad, but if they are bad, they are not going to be imitated. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and also in terms of nuisance now, and including noise, uh, it's very easy now to document noise and uh, you know to to document the the, <coughs> the decibels at a certain time of the day and to document it legally so that. You can prevent, uh, you know, somebody, you know, using a saw at midnight or something like that. You know, <laughs> that, uh, uh, and uh, so, so those reasons do not need to be. You know, you need to regulate the amount of of uh, of noise, which is legal up to what time, and you don't need to say you cannot have a bakery because a bakery is noisy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Or you cannot have an architect working in his basement because uh, it should be purely residential. You know, this is the case in Glen Rock. Where you can, uh, <laughs> and, Glen an Rock, architect yes. ca cannot uh, cannot work uh, on his computer in the in his house. Uh, it's it's illegal. Well, and I shared that story with you just recently over the the nimbyism of over the uh, multifamily building next to the, the yes, Glen Rock right. Rail Station. Yes, right. right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah, even in your even these problems that I think we tend to think of as urban problems, you know, really affect uh, suburbs, small towns. Yeah, you know, I, but it's it's a you know again, let's get back to property rights. You know, uh, those the the developers here has applied regularly. He has uh, you know he has a law on his side. Uh, I don't think the, the the city have a standing to say we prevent you from doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they they may say in terms of traffic that uh, they may have to install a traffic light and then charge them maybe an impact fee for the traffic light, uh, you know, when they they connect to the main road, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, the the main road connect, <coughs> you know, to the access to this site with a stop sign. It's it's one that I take all the time because it's next to the CVS where I go, and uh, so I and. Uh, so it's a place where probably you should have a traffic light, you know, if there are more people living on this site. Mm. But there are plenty of traffic light inside Glen Rock. I don't see why you could not have one more. But that's just it, right? You know, charge the new development for the marginal cost of the infrastructure yes. or right, regulate yeah, the impacts, yeah. but don't just say, no, we're not going to allow this. Right, yes. Period, yes. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, as a matter of principle, especially because, frankly, uh, I mean, this thing about uh, townhouses has been around in Glen Rock for 20 years now. And every time, basically, the people who live in detached housing don't want townhouses mm. because they think they are the wrong type of people. And, and, and that's just not a legitimate 
objective it's not of the legitimate planet, objective. right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The type where, yeah. what type of person gets to live where, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, when, uh, when I was attending the zoning board meeting some years ago, regularly, just to educate myself, uh, there was a guy at the same time who said, could we, at, he was a member of the zoning board, he says, could we put a, a, a special uh, zoning regulation which prevent people with more than two children from living there? <laughs> Because he says, because uh, the school is our most, uh, ex you know, it's the most expensive expenditure. So people who have uh, more children will, uh, you know, we will uh, be obliged to expand the school and it will cost money. So they, and fortunately, there was a, the town lawyer was there saying, no, that would be unconstitutional. We can do that. Well, and in any other up. area of policy, right, it would be unthinkable to say, let's adopt a local ordinance capping the number of children people can have. But when yeah, yeah. zoning and planning but comes so, into the picture, people exactly, start to say yes. these crazy things, right? Crazy things, yeah, 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 right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, and that part of it's because we politicize it, right? I mean, if, if the yes, townhouses right, yeah. were allowed as, of, you know, they followed the building, health and safety, they paid their impact fees, they respected nuisance rules, um, yes. there would be no larger discourse about the rules we place on the townhouse. The townhouses would be built and... We That's would right. work around yes. it, right? That's but we right, politicize yes. every development uh, under That's the way right. we do yes, today. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And uh, I was, <coughs> some time ago, I was discussing with a, a developer in Charleston who did extremely innovative suburban development, you know, extremely attractive. And, uh, and also trying to allow, um, you know, the subletting of some part of the, the large houses that were built. And the reaction at public hearings, and he had recorded it actually, people were saying, you are transforming Charleston into, into Hong Kong. You know, we don't want Charleston <laughs> to become Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes a slogan like that. And then people say, oh God, it's going to look like Hong Kong. Yeah, and this is in Charleston, right? A city with a pretty rich heritage of urban development. Uh, That's right. And, and yeah, people yeah. still oh, an accessory dwelling unit is this is this is path it? to Hong Kong, and you know, yes, actually, that's right. Bizarre, right? Yeah, bizarre. Um, I want to do a quick lightning round here. Um, a few small, quick questions. Um, your favorite city in the U.S. Ah, oh, I guess uh, I guess New York. Yeah, naturally. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, yeah. Although now that I have been to Charleston several times, I uh, I found it uh, extremely interesting, especially mm -hmm. now that I see that there is a possibility to develop the suburbs in a, in a much more attractive way. But that's uh, a bit an accident of uh, uh, the, the developers who are there, I suppose. Uh, favorite city, favorite world city outside uh, of the U.S.? Hong Kong was my favorite city. I say was because uh, a lot of Hong Kong attraction to me was also the bookstores, the you know the the freedom was part of it. Hmm. And uh, so I'm not so sure. I'm I'm even fearing that one day I will be asked to have a visa to visit Hong Kong. Yeah. And so, uh, so Hong Kong was that, you know, that, and Hong Kong was, you know, it was this mix of uh, extreme, you know, change and mobility and modernity and, and, uh, and extreme tradition, which were yeah. kept, you know, if you, if you know, know Hong Kong well, you find some streets where 
where you have a market which sell grasshoppers, you know, on the on the food market and things like that, and 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 uh, and at the same time you could have <laughs> the most uh, modern way of you know getting to your airplane or something. Like that. Uh, so, uh, other than your book, or of course my book, what's your favorite urban planning book, or what's had the most impact on your work? Ah. <coughs> uh, uh, You know, it's uh, maybe maybe it's more sorry. Maybe it's more uh, maybe the books on economics for me mm. were, were you know like uh, Adam Smith and uh, and Ayek maybe uh, mm. you know that. Uh, on this spontaneous order, we think, you know, for me, really, I learn by by observing cities. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you move in the street, even in a city you know well, like like New York or, or Paris, and suddenly you see a change. You see why why is why the the grocery store closed there and is replaced by a you know closed store. Or, or a cinema, or the cinema closed and they're replaced, and and you learn things that way by by <coughs> observing cities. Mm -hmm. So I I am, uh, you know, I still read about planning, and uh, uh, but uh, you know, there's not. Uh, I mean, Jane Jacobs certainly, especially the economy of cities, more than the uh, the book. Where, She's most well known, the the uh, life, death, death and life, and life uh, death mm. and life of, uh, but uh, the economy of cities. Yes, I I learned a lot from this book too. Yeah, but uh, in general, uh, I think cities are yeah again because of this spontaneous order. It's just by observing. You know, basically Jane Jacobs observed cities very well. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she observed her neighborhood and and what she learned. She she extracts this observation into into a general theory. Hmm. So Planning is much me, more of a learn by doing profession, right? Or, yeah, or understanding and, cities, right? But but say observing and not judging. When you observe something which is weird to you, not judge, but say why is this person doing that? You know why? Um, <coughs> for instance, you know some years ago. Uh, there was a, a terrible tragedy in Bangladesh. Uh, there was a factory which was four, five story high textile, and it collapsed because of you know the vibration of the machine. The concrete was not good quality. Then I I look at the address and I look at it on Google, and I say, why should you have a five story factory at about forty kilometers from Dhaka? You know, you would mm. think that you know. And and then you realize that there is so little infrastructure around Dhaka that if you if you have a successful textile factory, you have no way of operating it and getting enough worker there unless you are on the main road. And there are very few main roads. So those five story was not an aberration. You know, they say it's terrible. He didn't ask. You know, the building permit was a bribe or something. I don't know what happened. Uh, but in fact, uh, those five story uh, building was a necessity. What was sad was that 
because of zoning again there was not he was not allowed to build a five-story building but to survive he has to build a five-story building and therefore <clears throat> then the contractor was probably not very conscientious and the, the concrete was defective mm. uh, and but say so you see when you observe something you're, you know instead of saying all oh, the bastard he, he built a five-story building there and uh, he should not have you say why why would you do that you know and because it's a little abnormal you know normally if you have factory you know textile factory they they, they are land intensive you know then you need land you need truck to bring things you need and so so by observing and not judging saying you know they have irrational for doing it i mean the rational could be criminal uh, you know they, it's possible but say it's a very good way of uh, learning. In hmm. in India, for instance, for me at the beginning when I was working in India, was the location of the panwala. You know, pan is a, you know it's a, it's the thing that the Indian shoe. You know, betel nuts that issue. And and usually those people have a court and they do good business, but uh, they and they they move at the most. Uh, expensive place, let's say, in terms of uh, uh, traffic, food traffic. So if you see a panwala, you know that that will be very good to open a grocery store next to it. Mm. So the panwala has an understanding of food traffic in a city. And when you see panwala, you know that uh, they, that's, uh, that's the most intense food traffic. So it could mm. be in a suburb, it could be in... So you see, observing things is, is absolutely key, I think. Again, because of this spontaneous order of cities, you know, it's not a rule. I mean, to, to design a sewer, you need rules and norms. But say, to know what is going to be active in a city, where the people will live, where you will have a shop, where you will have a bakery or a bar, uh, this is observation. Mm. And experimentation, right? And experimentation, yeah, yeah, right. and to see when you have freedom and when you don't have freedom. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite novel? Ah, uh, you know uh, the uh, the the red and the black of Stendhal. I, I'm mm. very much in nineteenth-century novel. And and possibly uh, and possibly war and peace, yeah, okay. war war and peace and and uh, the red and the black. But I, I mean, yeah, have I, they I your think planning work at all. Uh, no, but my my attitude toward <laughs> people, yes, mm. uh, and toward history and and culture, culture. That's another emphasis, I think, in your book that's that's quite important is the the role of planning in shaping planning outcomes, right? Uh, you know, I think we there's this there's this impulse to be very dismissive of that and to reduce a lot of these land use or <coughs> urban design rules to universal heuristics, but I think you're yes. you're very resistant to that. Yes, yes, right, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, things should have, you know, there are cultural aspects too, uh, which has are important and because in most country I mean practically I work a little in France when I was a student but I, I never really worked in France so I always worked in different culture and I was aware of it 
you know, you, you have to be aware of it, that your own value do not count. I mean, except moral values, I mean, uh, but say, uh, your preference for for wine or, or of, of a beer it doesn't count. You know, the, your preference for high density, my preference for high density, because I'm, I'm used to Marseille, doesn't count. Uh, you know, I have to judge things so how well they work for the people who live there. So, so you have to to consider that you keep a culture, but I imagine always that uh, I have cultural switches on my on my chest like that, and I, I, and if I am in India or in China, I switch off my French culture for the moment, and and I switch on what I know about Chinese culture, and I try to judge with their own culture. Hmm. So that's why I I can live comfortably in an American suburbs right now because I, I, I have I've switched my, my New Jersey culture switch <laughs> and put down my, my French culture switch. Ah, uh, yes, uh, a, a significant improvement, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, what is your favorite film? Ha, uh, Ah, La Grande Illusion, you know, I've, I've still, so it's a French switch there, the, La Grande Illusion. And, I mean, this is going to be controversial, but uh, uh, Gone with the Wind, I absolutely love Gone with the Wind. Mm. You know, with all its, uh, you know, baggage of, uh, but I think that <coughs> it's telling a story for from a point of view which is completely foreign to me. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting movie. So again, I'm talking always about old movies, you know, that uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a man of the past. Well, at least it's not 19th century movies. <laughs> yeah, we don't have many options there, right? Yeah, but La Grande Illusion, I, I certainly recommend, I don't know if you have ever seen it. I haven't actually. Oh. Yeah, Renoir. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great movie. Um, I, I've talked to you about this before, but uh, how do you approach a new city? So, I mean, it strikes me that over the course of your career, you've you've flown into cities that you've never been to before yeah. and have been expected yeah. to come up with clever insights. I mean, how, how do you approach a new city for the first time when when well, I'm traveling? What should I do? What should I look for? Before before uh, before Google uh, Google Earth Google Map. Uh, I used to go from the center and I will randomly try, I will walk for two or three hours toward the suburbs to see the, how, how the land use change uh, when I go to the suburbs. So I did that two or three times in three or four directions. And then uh, with Google Earth now, I can select my itinerary a little better instead of being mm -hmm. random. And so I try to sample a city just by looking at uh, at the pattern of streets and things like that. So, so I visit one neighborhood or another to to have a a balanced view of what the city is all about. And I uh, I try still to go from center to suburbs, you know, including the far away. You know, I like especially in Asia to take public transport. To the terminal of the public transport, to the end of it, and see what happened at the end. That's mm. what I find interesting. What uh, you know, what, at the border of the the 
the, the labor market. That that lets you see, I guess, the gradient of the the gradient, the city, yes, right? right, yes, yes, yes. So in some cities, it's it's uh, it takes time. You know, a city like Mexico City, for instance, before you can go to enough different suburbs, you know, north, south, east, uh, it takes it takes a while. Mm. Uh, you know, then you can take a taxi, maybe, or something. You get a little more bourgeois, and take a taxi, or Uber. To go to the end, but it's much easier because now you can uh, you can see the uh, you know not only the pattern of streets that you can see on a map, but you can see the uh, you know the granularity of the urbanization on uh, Google Earth. I mean, Google Earth for an urban planner is you know it's like the the law of Newton for an astronomer. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> uh, it, it's something would change everything. Mm. As someone who spends probably two or three hours on Google Maps every day, I totally agree. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You imagine before Google, uh, Google Map, what the world was like for a planner? Yeah. You know, when I first arrived in, in Yemen, in Sana, uh, there was no map at all of Sana, so I, I start sketching. And it was summer, and so... I assume, you know, I always use the sun to, uh, you know, orient myself. But I didn't realize that uh, we were south of the tropics, so the sun was coming from the north. So I get my sketches wrong, and then it couldn't work. And so finally, <laughs> I, I took a compass, and I took my compass out. And, and I was sketching uh, streets in order to understand where, you know, and then finally, the UN uh, managed to pay a set of aerial photographs. Mm. Uh, so suddenly I, I spent all my time looking at the aerial photograph of Sana and I learned a lot there. And then, uh... So I think, um, you know, I, 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 part of what's so great about your book, of course, is not just that it's a pure <laughs> urban planning theory, but it's, it's really rich with, um, with stories, I mean, you have you have an, kind of an incredible career. I I, I referred to it as uh, you know like the Forrest Gump of urban planning. Of course, I mean that in the sense of being at every moment in history, right? Um, yes. But uh, it, it strikes me that uh, you and you can start the story maybe however you like. But uh, it strikes me that you sort of come into planning at a really interesting point in history, right? As sort of decolonialism is taking off right you, as, a, as a global planner and yes. of course as you say you 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 fairly immediately uh move into uh you know a a, a global south context um right, yes. how did you so your first if i recall correctly your first planning job is in algeria newly independent algeria is that right actually my first planning job i mean very modest was in chandigarh uh when he was i was still a student in architecture uh and uh so I was 23, and uh, I took a year off from the Beaux-Arts. You know, I was, you know, I've been already studying four years. And, um, and uh, at the time, Corbusier was God, you know, among the <laughs> planning students. Uh, because he has a, well, you were asking me which book I prefer. Probably, uh, you know, the book of Corbusier are, completely wrong in their theory. I mean, the complete nonsense even. But uh, 
the style is very attractive. Mm. Uh, you know, it's very, uh, very punchy. The, it doesn't go, it, it doesn't say on one hand, on the other hand, maybe, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's, and so, so the, the idea of Chandigarh was extremely attractive where he explained why he did Chandigarh and how it was planned and, and this, this complete rationality, fake rationality, but, you know, so I, I found that attractive and, uh, so I, I decided to take a year off and hitchhike my way to Shandiga. And, uh, so I was 20, and, and again, as you say, it was the beginning of decolonization. So that is true, you know, I, I was not graduate, I was a student in architecture arriving with a backpack at, uh, at the chief planner office in Chandigarh, and I'm given a job immediately. Mm. You know, this will not happen nowadays, you know. <laughs> and it was because, uh, uh, you know, there was a desperate need for uh, for people, and, and maybe people from the West also had a, you know, they had a monopoly on education. In a certain way, on modern education, and and uh, India at the time of Pandit Nehru, uh, their model—I mean, th their model was still the develop, you know, the, the development of the West. You know that, uh, uh, you know. The, so, so that gave me an opportunity to to look at and and again, if I had visited Chandigarh as a tourist. Maybe I would have been convinced that it was a great city, you know, that it worked exactly the way it was planned. And, and then because I worked there, then I realized that it worked, it works, but the way it was not planned. You know, mm. what was planned was wrong and what, what worked was, was spontaneous, you know, piggyback on, on this infrastructure. So, so that, that was a big lesson for me. Um, and then, of course, <coughs> that's where I, I developed also a, a you know, because I was traveling in a very modest mean, I was always ending up in, in hotels where <coughs> sharing room with uh, five or ten people in the, in the poorest area of towns, you know, in, in Iran or in, in uh, <coughs> Afghanistan. And uh, <coughs> so, he, it gave me a an interest, you know. A, I was mostly interested in monuments when I started, and then when I came back after one year of moving around, I I was interested in settlements. You know, I thought that the settlements themselves were very very imaginative, and especially when they were spontaneous. Like, uh, you know, I I told the story that the you know the slum of Chandigarh, that's where you could find the best restaurant and. Uh, the best clothes, the best, uh, you know, because that was spontaneous. Hmm. Did you, I mean, so that's interesting, though, because I mean, coming from Shandigar, which is meant to be this perfect rationalist, like, right, like yes. hyper yeah. plan. So, I mean, you just have a visceral reaction to that, or you just, you, or, or I guess what you're saying here is you've noticed that the most functional parts of the city were the parts of the city that broke from that. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And I, in a way, uh, the infrastructure itself was was useful what was wrong was was again the the zoning you know the concept of the city city made of sector which are self-sufficient uh you know and uh, <coughs> things like that 
hierarchical too. So that but say the the second most uh, then you know in a way that was anecdotal because the work I did in Chandigarh, you know, it was a fact of working in Chandigarh was was interesting. Um, when uh, the work I did in Chandigarh itself was very, you know, I was basically designing houses according to models which were given to me, and I was more a tracer, you know, that, that's, mm. that's a job which has, has disappeared, but basically, and uh, uh, by the way, designing under models established by two British architects who would design all the houses for Shenigar. Jane Drew and uh, Maxwell Fry, yes. But so my, my really formative years in that was uh, was in uh, in Algeria, where uh, in Algeria that's the first time I was confronted with regulations, land use mm -hmm. regulations, and and I was in a crucial role because on top of it I had to give building permits according to the regulation of the former colony, which was my own country, and I could recognize in those regulations, the suburbs of Paris uh, superimposed on on a city. Clemson was, uh, you know, where I was, was a very uh, old city, medieval, uh, you know, traditional, a long tradition of urban. And we were imposing there something completely foreign and absurd. And uh, and it was two years after independence, but the, the law was still there. I'm pretty sure the law is still there. The same regulation are still there. Right? The, and these were a set of land use regulations essentially imposing French norms. That's French right, yes. Norms. Yes, right, yeah. Yes, right, yeah. No, not, you know, it was out of ignorance. I don't think it was kind of a, uh, even racist or anything. It was just out of ignorance, mm -hmm. saying this is the way, you know, um, so, for instance, uh, there were very large setbacks where traditional housing in in Tlemcen was in fact a courtyard. And, and by the way, there was a historical area in Tlemcen that the French have declared as historical preservation and it was absolutely forbidden to demolish anything there. So they recognized the value of it, but they will not allow the Algerian to build the equivalent type of housing, you know, in the, mm. which is interesting. The, and and uh, so there were large setbacks. So, and because uh, people had, didn't have much money, the, they tended to have small lots. So large setback and small lot doesn't make, you know, much efficient housing. So I, I thought that there might be a reason for it, you know, that I was ignorant, maybe that. So I asked, there were several engineers there who have been, they were French, by the way, still, but although it was after independence, again, the effect of colonialism was that there was no, uh, not much educated people there in, uh, in you know, engineers and, you know, locals. So they had obliged to, to hire foreigners like me. And uh, and I said, you know, why those setbacks? So one of them told me, well, maybe one day we may, may want to pass an easement or a new street there. And so it will be convenient not to demolish any building, it will be cheaper. So to pass a new street between two buildings. I said, but have you ever done it? He says, no, but it could happen. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I say, well, yes, but, uh, you know, it's a very expensive thing. And and finally, uh, I realized how stupid this thing were, especially uh, seeing the, the... the beauty of the traditional architecture of, uh, and and then again there was this cultural thing that uh, um, you know a, a detached house in a suburban area in the west it's a house which look outside and the tradition in the Middle East uh, is that a house look inside you know you mm-hmm. have a courtyard and it it makes sense not only in terms of <coughs> culture and privacy but in terms of climate. You know, in the courtyard, because you have some dry winds and all that, so you can create a microclimate, you can uh, raise plant uh, little trees, they will be sheltered from the wind, you know, things like that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And and it was, again, thousand years of tradition. Uh, I mean, this is something that strikes me in the U.S. Lainey's context, is we have incredible geographical climatic variation between a place like Arizona and New Jersey. Right, but the yes. R one zoning district will look broadly exactly the same. Yes, right? that's interesting. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. Bizarre. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, that's right. Because for the same thing, just uh, uh, not impo- You know, tradition. That that's the way people think their building is is look like. You know, and and so they they rebuild it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so uh, so that's but for you, me. But you uh, buck that tradition, right? I mean, you pushed back a little bit on some of these rules, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. That, then. You know, I was very naive. I, you know, after two or three days signing those letters, because I had the secretary, uh, was has been, you know, working for public work for forty years all her career. She was close to retirement, and so she she will herself look at the plan, and she will uh, see all the the you know the things where they didn't fit the code de l'urbanisme, and so she will prepare a letter for me. So it was a, a very cozy job, you know. Every morning. I had 20 letters that she had already typed. I only had to sign and, uh, and usually rejecting the, the building permit because the setback was not large enough or something like that. The window were not large enough. And uh, so I, the first three, four days, I was so impressed by this kind of thing that I signed, but I was very, I mean, at the end, I said, this is terrible. I'm refusing, you know, there are few people asking for building permit. Most of them were, were uh, informal and illegal. And then there are few, and I refuse them, you know, and, and because they are building much worse building than, uh, you know, I impose much worse building than the one they would build without the regulation. So I was naive, so I went to see the prefet the prefet in, in, you know, again, the, it was Algeria, but it was still the, the administra- French administrative structure, is a representative of the central government in the province. And and uh, so he's the chief of all the civil servants, and I was one of them. And I asked him, you know, naively I told him, look, uh, you know, this this regulation makes no sense. I'm an architect. Allow me to use my common sense to refuse or accept the building permit. Uh, it was terribly naive proposal. Well, criminal, even so, maybe probably. <laughs> and and the guy told me he was a young guy, also as as inexperienced as I was as a prefet. He has been fighting against the French for for the last ten years, I suppose. And he told me, uh, "Well, that's fine. Yes, do it. Do it. Uh, you know, use common sense." 
And so I went back and I told my employees and my secretary, well, from now on, uh, we are not going to follow the code of urbanism. We are going to, to allow people to, you know, if they want central courtyard and to build to the property line, that will be fine. So, so that created a bit of a stir, but, <coughs> but then it, it became very, very popular. Suddenly people realized, so there were more people asking for building permit because they will uh, be able to build, uh, and and it ended up, uh, uh, you know, people bringing gifts to the chief to the planner to the inspector of the urbanism. So in the, in the in the form of uh, sheep or or, or 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 chickens or something like that. So so that, those were auctioned among the employee, which uh, allowed them to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so they 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 had to to change their way of doing business, but at least they had a reward because uh, they had the chance of uh, earning a sheep or a chicken at the end of the week. Hmm. And have you been back? I had been back, I had been back two, but not recently. I've been back two or three years, but uh, uh, unfortunately Algeria had deteriorated, uh, <coughs> you know, politically, I think the, the fight for independence was too harsh and um, you know in a way it gave the military uh, the military dominated completely uh, not politicians you know if you compare to morocco or tunisia the, the two countries which became independent without a a very hard uh, you know fight uh, they are doing much better mm. you know in terms of country you know morocco and tunisia are really country you know very pleasant to visit they, they, i mean they have their problems but they they are doing relatively well but mm -hmm. uh, algeria is no the regime is is not i mean well in the decolonial context too it strikes me this is this is where maybe some countries diverge right many countries right, yeah. maintained a lot of these colonial land right, use yeah. institutions that probably didn't yes. make a lot of sense given their local yes. context but but at least some did sort of hit the reset button on this. I mean, you can still see, uh, you know, particularly in a country like India, the, the yes. legacy of a lot of these colonial... Yes, town and country uh, planning uh, uh, regulation are still there. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Including minimum plot size, you know, which completely absurd, you know. But, uh, yes, yes. Right, right. Uh, uh, and so, so from, from, from Algeria, you go where? I know you're in Yemen at some point. So Algeria then... Uh, then I went back to, I had not finished my study, to back to pass my diploma finally in Paris. <laughs> and then, and then we, Marines and I were looking, you know, again, to, to work in a developing country. We thought it was more adventurous, more, uh, and, and we had a friend who was, uh, just coming back for, from Oberlin College. She has spent a year in Oberlin College. And she came back absolutely enthusiastic about the U.S. And uh, say, you know, she came back with a record of Bob Dylan, you know, thing like that that we had never heard before, uh, John Bays. Uh, and uh, so she convinced us to go there for one year before we will go to Cambodia or whatever we end up. And so we we applied to. Finally, there, there was an organization who find. Uh, uh, jobs for young architect or engineer uh, European and in the US and then do the same for Americans in Europe. So so I ended up with a job with Philip Johnson in New York 
Philip Johnson at the time was uh, one of the most well-known architects in the world, but completely the, the antinomy of what I believe myself in a way after my stint with Corbusier. Uh, you know, I, I believe more and more strongly after, you know, traveling in those developing countries that housing in particular is, is a Darwinian process. You know, it evolves slowly by uh, reacting to to culture, but climate and things like that. And, and you have to respect, you have to understand why traditional housing are the way they are, not, not necessarily copy it, but they understand why it's there. And you cannot have it tabula rasa, where Philip Johnson was, uh, you know, the, the, the international style that uh, they decided, you know, with Miss Van Der Rohe and uh, Philip Johnson and in a way Corbusier, that there was such a thing as rationality, you know, that, that you know, uh, Philip Johnson thought he was being rational. There was nothing, absolutely nothing rational about it. It's just a style, you know, like, like modern style or art deco or something. And, and uh, so they, there was an enormous arrogance that I, I found it difficult to take. Uh, it was a nice experience because I've never been working in a luxury building like the Sigram building. And uh, it was a delight to work there with, uh, you know, inside the Philip Johnson office where uh, they were, you know, I remember you know, they, they had a lot of pop art inside the thing. They had also, if I remember well, a, a Giacometti sculpture at the entrance. I mean, this was this type of thing. So it was a very new experience for me. But I didn't last very long. And I, I left. But by the way, I was very reluctant to leave because everybody has been very nice with me. And if you, in France, if you leave after six months on a job, in your resume, it will look terrible. And my American colleague told me, no, if you have another job, just tell Philip Johnson, you get a better salary and it's more interesting and you leave. And I thought, Gee, can I say that? And uh, they say, yes. And I said it and they, they threw a party for me and say, you're welcome to come back when you want, you know, which <laughs> for a French employer, I will have been uh, blacklisted forever mm. in Paris for, you know, so that again, the labor market, you know, the American labor markets. And I, I discovered the advantage of an American labor market. You see, in a French context, I would have been stuck with Philip Johnson for probably 20 years. And so I would have been designing staircase, maybe, I don't know what specialty I would have or doing rendering because I was little bizarre. And I would have been bored to death, but say you have to make a living, mm -hmm. and uh, and not being able to change job because you know you destroy your resume if you change job. So that uh, and and after that, after uh, then we went to the planning commission and uh, Department of City Planning, right? The Department of City Planning. They, uh, Mayor Lindsay had created a special group which was not made of civil servant to have more flexibility and it was called the urban design group yeah. uh, the it was a time of advocacy planning and i think if i remember well it was a new yorker will call us the the establishment advocate you know mm. <laughs> and so we uh, part you know one of the main accomplishment of this group was 
the protection of the theater district in Midtown. You know, they, <coughs> they increase floor ratio for developer will keep, uh, will keep theaters in the, in the block, you know, that they will be there. So they could develop over a rights over things. So that was interesting. But I ended up in a project in Harlem uh, because that was designed, first I thought it was a MIT, it was designed by Columbia University, you know, a group of professor and student, and to renew, again, it was urban renewal in Harlem, and it was to redevelop the, uh, around the Park Avenue, you know, on the block, uh, Lexington and Madison, and uh, to build a vault uh, above it and build a skyscraper above the vault. And, and so I was, I was not asked to design, you know, that was design already. I was asked to, to go into the community and sell the idea. And I realized how stupid the thing was. Uh, I, I designed an isometric of the thing with the topography, you know, that, and, and when I designed it, I realized, and the, the, the objection that the community made were completely realistic. Uh, and there was this idea that, you know, at the time there were a lot of, uh, especially drug problem in Harlem, and uh, the the idea that you take a drug addict and uh, you know people who are living in in those two blocks, you know, uh, and you put them in nice apartment and the problem is solved. You know that uh, that what surprised me too environmental by the, determinism right right yes yeah that's yeah. right yeah and what struck me too is that normally in in poor area i've never been in a poor area where the housing was so good you know uh, most of Harlem is still uh, brownstones you know which are absolutely beautiful building and so you could be very poor and uh and living in a brownstone of course you have you know eight family in one brownstone probably or something like that but it's still a, a beautiful building and the environment is not worse than in the other part of Manhattan. you know you have parks you have things you know what is what is bad is a concentration of uh, of uh, poverty in one area and drug addiction uh, uh, bad schools uh, uh, garbage which is not removed etc but uh, so those problems are not solved by design i mean they are sold by management of the city so I, that was and then suddenly i found a an advertisement for for a job as urban planner in yemen i thought it was a nice break and i had the luck when i went home after seeing this advertisement to have a wife who told me oh yemen yes why not sure and uh, we bought there was a national geographic issue on yemen just two three years before so we bought it and it was beautiful traditional building you know the national geographic was saying that so we went to yemen there and uh, we stayed three years there and uh, we enjoyed it very very much it was well, uh, but on new york very quickly i mean it seems like you were in you were working and planning in new york in a, in a very very tough time for the city i mean yes, that was, right yeah. you know, yes, so this right, was the this was what uh, the so yeah it was 60 68 to 70. So okay. assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, you know, the, the Chicago convention was a riot, the assassination of uh, Robert Kennedy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, then, I mean, it, and the constant protest against the Vietnam War, you know, Columbia University practically was, was a, 
you know, was a constant riot, you know, with the, you know, the, uh, there was, you know, yeah, it was, it was a pretty dramatic uh, time. I mean, you have like population loss, I mean, pretty dramatically underway in, in New York at this time. And that's, a, I mean, that's a planning issue that you also sort of raise in your book. Of course, New York City's bounced back, but planning in a context of population shrinkage is yes. incredibly yes. difficult, right? Yeah, we, we don't know how to handle that. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's a bit like inflation and deflation. You know, inflation is bad. It creates problems. But deflation, you know, like the Japanese have known, we don't know how to handle deflation. Hmm. Uh, and and the, and the city is the same. And I I have never confronted that, by the way, on a long span, except when uh, the last time I went working in Russia as a consultant, it was what, 10, 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And uh, so I, I was working mostly on the new master plan of St. Petersburg and Moscow, asking ad advice. And uh, they came to me and say, we want to close 60 cities. Could you advise us on that? And closing 60 cities in, uh, in Russia, because they were cities which were created at the time of the Soviet Union, mostly to be away from uh, uh, you know, potential bombers from NATO. So they were somewhere in Siberia, they will have the, the largest factories making tractors for so, so making, but uh, in the middle of nowhere. So of course, Soviet Union could do things like that. And, and because there were no labor markets, so, so people were told to go there. And, and then of course, uh, in a modern economy, you cannot support cities like that. You know, the larger tractor factory in the world uh, was nice for the Soviet Union. It is not uh, nice uh, for globalization, you know, you don't have uh, uh, in the middle. So they had to close those cities. And I told them I have absolutely no experience. I mean, I'm willing to look at the problem, but, uh, uh, and then after that, I, uh, some years after I visited a, uh, in, in Japan, the city of Toyama, which is a very nice grand city of a million and a half, and uh, they were losing population. And the mayor explained to us what are the problem of losing population. You know, that uh, you have more and more empty buildings that you have to demolish. Uh, you want to regroup the population toward the center because they, they end up living in area where half of the people in the block are gone. So you cannot, uh, you know, it's not the economy. And then it means that the asset of the people who are moving back are worth zero. Mm. You know, normally your house is always worth something. And, and here the word, the, so, uh, so it's the, the, the mayor explained the problem they had, and they were doing really relatively well, but uh, but say with big subsidies from the central government to do it, mm -hmm. and and I didn't see any solution, you know, except slowly, you know, he was trying to create amenities to keep the younger people from going to Tokyo, but unless you are interested in geriatric, you know, if I was a young Japanese, I would have moved to Tokyo in no time, mm. uh, you know, rather than stay in Toyama, even if they create a new cinema or, you know, or a concert hall. I mean, that will not have kept me in Toyama. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I, I, 
And so I think that, I mean, that's the other, I think one of these other great epochs that you work in planning through is the transition from communism back yes. to sort of market-based economies. But I want to sort of close the loop on the the decolonial discussion and some of your work in, in Yemen, um, right? So of course, yeah. Yemen is a, a deeply troubled recent history, but at the time yeah. you were living there, working there, helping them uh, with some of the Yeah, work. well, it was one of the few countries which has never been colonized. You know, mm. they, there was a brief occupation by the Roman, we'll call it the Arabia <laughs> Felix, you know, the, the happy Arabia. Uh, mm. and, then, uh, and then the Turks, I think, managed to occupy it for 40 years, and that was it. Uh, and they, they left their music, you know, the music that they used the, is very much derived from Turkish music. But that's about it. So, and it was a, a theocracy, then uh, they, there was a revolution, and at the time, so there was a civil war, and then when I arrived, the civil war was just ended, and they made a, a government made of the two sides, you know, so my, my boss, uh, Minister of Civil Work, was uh, a former royalist, but say other ministers will be Republicans, you know, that. but it works, it was a medieval country, but consistently medieval, so it works relatively well. Uh, you know, again, you have to switch a bit your culture for some aspect, but uh, uh, but uh, it was. And what struck me was that uh, the, there was really unanimity in the government with some corruption, but they wanted to do something. You know, they wanted to to improve things, and uh, and because the Yemeni are, have a tradition, you know, the aristocracy is farming. It's it's not nomads. It's farming, so they they like physical work. So when I I decided that the most important job for me, the the city by the way was growing about seven percent a year, so that means it doubled in ten years, and so my main job was to create new streets as fast as possible, so the you know the city could expand and and still have a transport system in the future which could work. So I, I was not, a, you know, I've learned surveying at the Col de Beaux-Arts, but I never practiced very much. I knew just theory, but, you know, I had, <laughs> I had a transit and I, I, I surveyed, you know, very quickly, uh, traced streets. And at the end, I, to do it faster, I would just do it with my Land Rover. I would put a, a, a rebar at, uh, you know, at, at the back of my Land Rover and I would drive and that would be the axis of the street. And uh, then we'll discuss with uh, the neighbors whether we put six meters on both sides or eight meters or 20 meters. And, and that, so it was done on the site like that. And uh, I worked a lot on the housing there too, uh, using traditional building material, avoiding any type of regulations except connection to the street. But except for that, uh, you know, I thought that Yemeni had a traditional building, which was excellent. You know, they built in mud, stone, or bricks. Uh, again, it was developed over 4,000 years. There was no reason to interfere in that. And so, um, you know, there were no, I, I tried to avoid any type of uh, land use regulation, mm. uh, except nuisance, you know, for, there was a small industrial area for, for some industries. But except for that, no. And the emphasis was really as the city expanded, 
to make sure that there was a network of street which would allow people to move from one part on the other. And which uh, city were you working in in Yemen? Uh, it, it, I was I was in Sana, based in Sana, but I was only architect and planner for the entire country. Mm. So I will move. You know, sometimes they will ask me. Um, for instance, there were villages, some old small town, which were in the mountain with no no vehicular road, and they will ask me to come and uh, locate a school for them. You know, and and plan the school. So uh, sometimes it will take me. Two, two days of walking, which I love doing. Uh, and I will arrive there in this village in the, high in the mountain and uh, select a spot for the school and I will trace it on the, on the ground with lime and things like that. So that was a type of thing. I mean, it was adventure, but it was delightful. I, uh, Marinus and I absolutely love the Yemeni. You know, it was a, a culture which was consistent. It was very different from ours. But they were very tolerant, by the way, extremely tolerant for for us as as Christians and foreigners. Uh, you know, they, um, for instance, during Ramadan, uh, they will bring us tea at the office. You know, although themselves will not take it, they say, "No, you, you, you are not Muslim. You, 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 you have to drink tea. You are our guest." I mean, there was a very, very moving. We we love the culture, and it's it's so. Dis you know, for us, it was so sad to see this culture, you know, destroyed completely by absurd war. It's, uh, the work you're doing in Yemen, I mean, it seems to me is this is very, you know, this is nuts and bolts city planning, right? I mean, you're yes, planning yes, out street right, yeah. grids and sewer. And so, so it was very different from uh, Harlem, you know, talking to the community and getting nowhere for good reason. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, yes, it was, it was really in... Uh, the basic thing, and the the UN thought that uh, I was doing a little too down to earth. So I produce a little report every three months, which were more kind of projection and the need for schools and things like that. But basically, my main job was uh, promoting uh, local building materials, and and you know, I we built our own house because. Uh, after after a year, when we learn a lot about it, because we didn't want the Yemeni to abandon their local building materials, which again corresponded to four thousand years of evolution, just because traditionally they didn't have uh, water supply or toilet in those houses, and so we built the house using completely traditional vocabulary, let's say but organized in such a way that there was a modern bathroom and a modern kitchen. Mm -hmm. And, but all the vocabulary, you know, we use local craftsmen, including for decoration, plaster, thing like that. We, so we learn a lot, by the way, by building our own house. Uh, we converted, you know, all the, the craftsmen were organized a bit like guild in the middle ages. And so they, <coughs> they had a way of, uh, uh, evaluating costs, you know, if somebody wanted to build a house or a, a public building, uh, it was very complicated because, you know, they, uh, you had to pay the bricks separately and then the donkey will bring the bricks uh, was a special thing. So I worked with them to convert all their system into a metric system. So at the end, we will have a picture of a 
a stone wall, say a square meter of stone wall with this quality will cost that much per square meter mm. of real. And we did that for, for, and so the guild was extremely grateful for that because then they could bid on, you know, they were, for instance, a Kuwaiti were building schools. And so far those, they could not bid, bid for that because they had the, such a different system. And now using the metric system and, and cost per square meter of thing, they, they could bid. And, and then the government obliged the foreigners to lose, to use uh, local craftsmen to build things rather than import cement blocks, you know, that which in the climate of Yemen doesn't work very well. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a type of standardization that respects, I guess, the processes already exist. It's just right. Slotting. Yes, yes, and uh, and and extremely skilled people. You know, you uh, you had those uh, stone masons who will build building five, six, seven story. Uh, they will be standing on the edge of the the roof and of the the wall, and they will cut stone. And you could not put a razor blade between the two stone after they have been cut without cement. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that type of skills, when they are, you know, in a way, uh, all the cost of a house was practically entirely labor, mm -hmm. uh, because they they dug the stone. You know, they had the basalt quarries just around, uh, so they dug the stone. Uh, you know, <coughs> and. Uh, uh, and they, they assembled them, and the quality was very high. You know, I put in, in at the beginning in the houses and in my house, I put thermometers everywhere on the roof on the different part, and to measure the different, you know, the the, the temperature uh, during the night, during the day, because you know all the plateau it's a high altitude. Sana is at two thousand six hundred meter, so the the nights are cold, especially in winter. The, the nights are cold. Uh, and uh, so, but during the day it's hot. So you, this material provide a you know a thermic inertia, which so we, by putting thermometer like that, we we find some optimum uh, things in terms of you know thickness of roof, a thing like that to to have to take the maximum number. So the Yemeni absolutely love that. They, they mm. uh, and. Uh, when I went back to Yemen several, for the World Bank several years later, uh, I ran into a, a Lebanese engineer who was working there and he says, isn't it terrible this country? The government still insists to use local building materials for for buildings, you know, the local style. I say, oh, yes, it will be good. Great. So so after after Yemen, what's, what's next on the... Uh... So agenda. after Yemen, uh, you know, the, in my last year in Yemen, I, I met a guy from the World Bank who came to, he was a building school too, it was a school, you know, and uh, I, uh, I was very impressed by the team of the World Bank, you know, the way they, they did project uh, their, their cost, the way they presented things. And uh, so I work with them very closely because also I know all the cost of building and land and so like that. And so they told me, well, um, you know, when you, you are finished with Yemen, uh, McNamara is creating an urban uh, department hmm. and you will be a very good fit for that. Robert uh, McNamara, former Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense, yeah. yes. Uh, 
was in the head of, uh, and he was very interested in urban, you know, he thought urban was important. So he created that. So, so after three years in Yemen, the, the, the UN normally will have uh, uh, renewed my contract another two years. And, um, but I decided professionally that although we love our life there, we had a lot of friends, but, um, you know, professionally, I had no feedback at all. The UN provide me, you know, the UN for them, uh, the government was happy with me, so they were happy with me too. Uh, you know, the, I had good relation with government, so that's what's fine. And, uh, but, uh, and the government, the Yemeni, you know, again, liked us, so they, they will approve of whatever we were saying, you know, in a way we are doing, but we never had any, any professional feedback. You know, nobody to discuss really what we were doing seriously. So I decided that we we have you know we have to leave. So we left, and uh, so I passed through Washington. I had an interview with the bank, and they they decide to you know offer me a job. But then at the same time, there was another job uh, with a consulting firm in Washington to do the master plan of. Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and we thought, gee, uh, Haiti, that's a, that's a really different culture. You know, we like different cultures, so that compared to Yemen, and uh, it's an intriguing country, you know, that uh, was also a, a, a very different culture in, in the Caribbean, uh, and so we decided to take the job. So I told the uh, the, at the bank, I told them, well, I, I decided uh, not to take the job at the bank, but to go for two years in Haiti to the master plan of Port-au-Prince. The guy was absolutely furious, you know. He told me, what? You, <laughs> you refuse a job with the World Bank to, to work in Haiti? So I said, well, after two years in Haiti, I will know more about developing countries and, uh, you know, I will have more experience. I will be more useful to the bank. And the guy said, after two years in 80, you will be useless. And then he hung up the phone and I thought, well, that was it. And indeed, 80 was, you know, it was the most comfortable place, most beautiful place we have ever been in. Uh, you know, the, the, it was a time of baby dark. But then I realized what corruption is all about. And that there is a limit to what you can do, even as an urban planner doing basic thing, you you know, then you, you know, it was the most depressing thing I have ever seen. Although again, food was wonderful, climate was wonderful. At the time there were no crime practically because, you know, dictatorship. But, uh, so the environment was wonderful. You know, you could, uh, in less than one hour from Port-au-Prince, you could be swimming in the corals, beautiful corals in the sea. You, uh, you know, there were still forests, you know, the, the environment was not destroyed as it is now. Uh, it was a beautiful place. And people were interesting too, but the very educated people were were completely corrupt. You could not do really anything. And so it was very depressing. So after a and, year and, and a half... How did, that, how did that intersect with planning? I mean, the, 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 the corruption. Well, well, for instance, say, uh, we had decided in our team that we didn't need to spend two years to develop a plan 
we could identify in a few months what we call immediate action project. And then we could develop then the traditional plan over those two years. And one of them where there was an enormous uh, slum, which was called Brooklyn, by the way, for some reason, and which has no water at all, which was on a place which was periodically flooded, and um, but they have no water. And so in order to have water, there was a, a water main which was bringing water to Port-au-Prince. So during the night, they will dig it, they will burst the pipe, and then they will take the water for themselves. So we thought that if we put a little water main going to Brooklyn and put five or six water fountain there free, it would be much cheaper than to have to repair the water main every two or three weeks or put guard there. And so we found immediately NGOs who had the money, who could do it. That was a perfect project, you know, water supply in Islam. So they, they bought the pipes. They, the, the plan was ready. You know, our engineers had designed the thing. It was very simple. And the pipes get stolen by the government. Uh, and our water engineers tried to make fuss about it. And he was told, just shut up. Uh, you know, if you don't shut up, you know, your your family even will be affected. He took the plane the next day with his family. He has two children and his wife, and he left the country. Hmm. Uh, and there was constantly this uh, threat when, you know, the, there was a baby dog at the time. Had a, he bought a, a house at the top of a mountain which dominate for a press, uh, L'Hôpital. And he, he wanted to have a nightclub up there. And uh, he wanted to have a road to go up there because there was a road from the back, but he wanted a more direct road. And this was a, uh, erosion was terrible there. So the main thing was to prevent development, you know, the, the, the slope was extremely steep. So a road would have created more erosion, more development. So. We, we say, no, it's not a good idea. We couldn't do that. There would be flood in Port-au-Prince all the time because of it. Uh, again, we were threatened, uh, you know, that, you know, it was very, very unpleasant. And again, our counterpart was charming people. We were, you know, they were wonderful diner companion. They, they, uh, they were cultured, you know, we'll discuss classical music. One of my counterpart, uh, was an architect. He had studied in France. He had studied in the U.S. I think he went to Columbia University. And then on top of it, he had a degree from Juilliard School of Music. He was a violinist uh, uh, specialized in Wagner, by the way. So you see, very culture, and that's the same time uh, part of the system, you know. So that was, so after a year and a half, we left. And then mm. we, we went back to Washington, then for the first time we went to Washington, living there and working as a consultant for, for this firm, uh, working in the Dominican Republic and you know that. And, and then eventually uh, I start working as a short time consultant for the bank. You know, they, they, they thought I was still useful after a year and a half in Haiti. And, and, uh, uh, but uh, then the next, uh, a job was in San Salvador. You know, again, our children were still small, and uh, 
the French usually have French school a bit all over the world, which follow exactly the same curriculum as Paris. You know, that's a French system. And and so we we moved to El Salvador then, uh, and uh, for a year. And uh, again, then the, it was mostly for slum, uh, uh, you know, the to regularize the slum, you know, to make the slum formal rather than informal, you know, give tenure, provide infrastructure. But then it, by the time we left, the the civil war started, you know, which lasted several. Uh, but it was a very interesting experience again here to to understand again this uh, spontaneous aspect, you know, especially what they call colonias illegales, which were basic, they were not slums really. They were people will buy a piece of land from a farmer, and the farmer usually provide some right of way from streets, sometimes staircase because it was hilly, but in area where the planners decided should not be developed for no reason whatsoever and uh, or, or because the state you know the lots were too small so those were illegal but the people then built themselves very nice houses there very <coughs> uh, looking even colonial houses we we realized there too what i learned there is that housing is not only shelter housing is a uh, is a social access you know it it marks your place in society and that's why uh, we found that a lot of people were spending a lot on the facade, so it looks middle-class houses uh, with some details of colonial architecture, because he said that they say that give you know when we live in this street, then it gives us a better name. They uh, you know if you live in a very bad uh, tugurio, you know a slum, uh, you have even difficulty in employment. People make mm. fun of you at school because you live in the streets. So, so it's a social, you know, it's a social acceptability. That's why, by the way, housing, when you try to build uh, housing for the poor, which looks completely different from the rest of housing. For instance, at the time, the idea was to to build dome Buckminster Fuller. You know, it was very cheap in bamboo. You could build Buckminster Fuller domes and and house a lot of people like that. The poor don't want that, you know. Uh, a, a young architect or a lawyer will be delighted to live in a Buckminster Fuller dome, but not a poor person, especially if only the poor live in Buckminster Fuller domes, well, even if it's very, very cheap and very efficient, which it is not, by the way. So you you have you know you have to consider housing that way that it's it's a social accessibility. It's a way of for migrants to integrate themselves into the city. And the, and the way it's perceived by their neighbor is very important. Hmm. Right. Well, I, mean, I think this also helps to explain that that, that seemingly universal impulse, impulse toward folks trying to segregate communities or impose some level of, of housing costs. Right, yes. A minimum on their neighborhood, right? Yes, there's this, yeah. There's this... Uh, this quality of, of, of you know, you, the type of neighborhood that you're in determines your social standing. Yes. And so there's, right. you know, of course, you want to have strict rules surrounding that and what that communicates, right? Yeah, you're right. It, it goes both ways, yes. Yeah. It goes both ways. Yes, it's true, yes. That means that the people aspire to, a, to send a signal of a higher level, 
but at the same time, the people who have reached a higher level do not want that their level is diluted by lesser quality housing. Well, and I think that's an interesting point too, because we often talk about housing in terms of number of units, how many units yes. were built. And I think there's two things that get left out of that. The first are the, the qualitative elements there of, you know, what yes. does the house, does the, the housing reflect the the values or the desires yeah. or the lifestyle preferences of the people living in it, but also yeah. where the housing goes. Where the right? housing, so yeah, yeah. If, the, if the housing is not accessible to large labor markets, then, yeah. you know, it's, it's only slightly, you know, better than, than not building the housing altogether. Right. Maybe it's worse. So... Maybe it's worse. You know, you, you yeah. see that in the, the Infonavi houses that they build in the Northern suburb of Mexico, which have been abandoned after some time, people realize they couldn't live there. You know, they have paid for their houses. The houses were, the design were okay, but uh, there were no amenities, no schools, no transport. Um, it was unlivable. Mm -hmm. and, uh, no access you know, to jobs, right? No access to job, you know, two, three hours commute, you know. not So the people abandoned the, those houses. I mean, it's, uh, mm. this, I've never seen that before. That, uh, and, and there was no market for it. You know, sometimes uh, when you give relatively good housing to subsidize housing to poor people, mm -hmm. then they tend to sell it or sublet it to other people who are more interested in it. But in this case, they couldn't find any 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 buyer. There was nobody who wanted to live there. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think that there's like... Uh... When I read your work, I think there's two real paradigms here, right? I think there's the first paradigm, which is let's tell people what to do and that will work out and we can yes. plan around this master vision. Yes. Yeah. The alternative is people are going to do what they're – there are certain locational preferences that they are going to find a way to satisfy one way or another. If, if for right. example, if our yes. plan says this particular farm cannot be subdivided for a neighborhood, but just there's overwhelming demand for housing in that particular area for some reason or another – there might be some health or safety reason why you don't want housing development there, right. but you're probably going to have more success if you say, okay, given that this is going to be housing, what planning, what infrastructure, what what regulations do we need to make sure that that housing is safe? Right. Yes. I, I mean, yes. they're, they're very different approaches to, to change. Yeah. One is trying yeah. to dictate yes. change and the other is responding to change and, and accommodating yes. change. Yes, yes. Yeah, we found that in, in uh, a case like that in Madras, for instance, uh, you know, Chennai now. At the time, there was an area where it was low-lying relatively close to a river where people would build slums, but it was periodically flooded. So the government first say, well, we don't want, <coughs> you know, we have to prevent. So periodically they will send the police and a bulldozer and they will build those things. So that means people get poorer every time. But every time the location was so good in a way in spite of its environmental problem, that there will be new housing there. So finally, we found that if we built a small dike along the river, then this area will not be flooded anymore. You know, that, and relatively, it was, it was not that expensive compared to demolishing housing every, every two or three years. Uh, there or trying to relocate the people in some suburbs. So sometime, you know, a, some infrastructure that you will do in any way in a city, you know, if an area is flooded, uh, you, you build drains so that it will not or burns or whatever, so that it will not be flooded. 
So it's a normal function of the city to do this type of thing. Precisely, you see again, I get back to my first uh, concept that infrastructure have to follow the people, not so, not so people follow the infrastructure. Right, right. So this is the type of work that you're doing in San Salvador. Yes, right, yeah, yeah. The, and San Salvador is was mostly to regularize those, uh, uh, those slums. I mean, there were three types of slums. So somewhere in, in bad location, then it was sometimes difficult to prevent, you know, especially uh, uh, collapse of, uh, you know, uh, hills. So then, then those have to be moved. But many of them were not. And uh, then those would be to accept to, to, to convince the government to accept that uh, uh, this were regular thing. They were, you know, e even if the, the, they were not squatters, eh? all those people had a piece of paper saying, Mr. Lopez sold this piece of land to Mr. Rodriguez for so many colonists. And so they, they had a piece of paper, which was not legal, but they were, they bought mm. the thing and there were streets, they were, you know, they, and uh, so that's uh, and the idea that the government eventually will put water there and and storm drainage and will recover part of the cost from the inhabitants and they were ready to pay for it you know to, to, because again these things and unfortunately then the civil war started and uh, the government took a terrible decision they wanted to have a, a ring road around san salvador and they they decided to put the ring road through those uh, illegal subdivision because they said it, it will cost us nothing. We don't have to compensate them uh, because they are illegal. And they, and they demolished thousands of houses which were really brick houses, middle class, which had been built with, you know, the, the sweat of their bro over years. And I think this accelerated the, the civil war, you know, the, the, the young people who are living there and uh, they have seen their parents build those houses bricks by bricks and suddenly bulldozer arrive with their army to say you move because uh, your piece of paper is not valid. Uh, mm -hmm. Those people then take to the hill with a, uh, with a gun and, and, and then you start a terrible civil war. Well, and, and so during I, this period too, there was, there was pretty large migration into cities. Right. Yes, right. Yes, yes, right. Because by the way, the economy was when we arrived, the economy was doing quite well. You know, Salvadorian are very hardworking people, very enterprising, very enterprising. And uh, we thought that this country in five years will be a middle class country hmm. because uh, we could see this enterprising. They, there was no very little crime when we were there. You know, our kids will move around. Some, you know, they were 10 years old, they will go to see their friend in the neighborhood by themselves. We will not, you know, they will know, you know, it will not be possible now, but at the time there was, uh, it, it was very, very, I mean, it was very pleasant. The, that was a very pleasant experience, except that again, it didn't result in, uh, you know, in the, although the, the ideas percolate, you know, again, the, those ideas that you regularize this thing, it became more and more acceptable to the government that uh, they didn't have, to, you know, Although they were illegal, we, <coughs> uh, you know, regularizing them is not re rewarding criminals, but on the contrary, to 
you know, we, we evaluated the, the, you know, the fixed capital represented those houses and it was very, very important. I mean, mm -hmm. So after that, we, we went back to Washington for a few months and then uh, consulting a bit all over around, you know, Indonesia and thing. And, and then the, finally we had the, the, a job uh, in Bangkok at the National Housing Authority, uh, which was then the, probably the best job we ever had, the most satisfying uh, because of the intellectuality of the Thai, you know, the, our colleague in Thai. We were, the, the National Housing Authority is, is a... What, uh, what year was this? Uh, that was in 1979 and 80, yeah. Hmm. And uh, they, uh, it was, uh, you know, it's it's a government entity to build low-cost housing, so they were doing mostly sites and services, or you know, uh, public housing. By sites and services, you mean uh, the uh, government going out there and subdividing uh, a property, planning uh, it right, out, yeah. selling, putting it out, the infrastructure. And, yeah, putting the infrastructure. Sometimes building the toilet even uh, uh, on individual lots, so they are connected to the sewer okay. directly. You know, thing like that. Yeah, and uh, <coughs> so that was delightful at all point of view, uh, then we didn't have the problem like in, in Yemen or, or in Haiti. Our colleagues were delightful, were intellectually, certainly our peers or our superior. So we, we had a lot of uh, intellectual stimulant. Uh, the food is fantastic, of course. The, the people are so polite and nice to work with. I mean, for us, it was paradise. And, um, you know, we, we kept relation with uh, our colleague there I mean it was um, it was right and then eventually then after that uh, I joined the bank then when I went back to Washington I joined the bank and uh, start working uh, on India actually full-time and then after that China and Russia and uh... mm -hmm. well I, I want to jump ahead here I mean so you know I think there's this this first big historical epoch that you're working in which is immediate post decolonialization context you know context, or context yeah. where just there's a lot of change in governance happening in the global south but i think another context that i believe heavily shapes your thinking is this uh sort of the twilight days of communism in the immediate post communist yes. states right i mean right. so you're yes. you're working in 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 russia to some extent and then china in the final days of, of what yeah. we might consider to be sort of, you know, the more, the, the greater commitment to the communist project than exists right, certainly yeah. in Russia, but even in China, yeah. right? Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. When I worked both in, in Russia and China, so that was right, you know, uh, Russia was just after, you know, when Yeltsin took over from Gorbachev, that's when I started. And so the Soviet Union was still intact in a certain way. I mean, uh, you know, th there was no, uh, you know, uh, Supreme Soviet or something, but say the, the bureaucracy was still, you know, the land still belonged to the government. Well, well, let me ask you potentially a, a, a big kind of ridiculous question. I mean, how does urban planning work within a, within a, a, a communist system? I mean, how were <coughs> well, they, what was the well, process like? Well, it's entirely design. You know, hmm. you design things and the engine, you know, the, the, the central planning organization tell you, you have to build, uh, let's say in Moscow, uh, 50,000 dwelling units. Okay. By the way, they don't even talk about 
building units, they, they talk about square meter. Uh, mm. you, you have to build, say, uh, I don't know, uh, five square kilometers of floor space. Uh, and then uh, they pass it on, you know, there are those vertical monopoly, which was called the combinat, where basically you have an enterprise who have sand quarries, cement factory, uh, steel mills, and they, and they build housing. Uh, and so the, the, there's no, uh, you know, there's no home depot, there's no place in the Soviet Union where you can buy bricks or cement. Uh, it's all within this mo vertical monopoly. All the cement produced is used for, for the housing built by the same company. So if you see a guy in the, that, that Russian told me that, if you see in a dacha a guy with a cement bag, he has stolen this cement, you know, he has not bought it, he has stolen it <coughs> from, from somewhere. Because there is no, uh, you know, this vertical monopoly. So they, they build houses. So uh, how do they do that? You know, central planning is, of course, extremely difficult because you have to, to, give enough resources for for this monopoly to have enough sand enough cement enough steel to build the the housing at the end uh, and sometimes there are contingency you know you you build in an area where there are let's say earthquakes so you need more steel but then if you need more steel and and the planners at the central planning there's no supply there's no additional supply you know where you you cannot uh, so you so you have to build less housing and then of course after that because the objective is to produce a certain number of square meter of housing uh, then the engineer develop system of prefab and the streets are entirely dictated the distance between building uh, where you put your 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 prefab uh, factory and the crane you know the line of the crane and then on both sides of the crane you know the crane will be on a rail and then you you build the houses so the, mm. the technology decide absolutely everything and that's why uh, you know one of my i think most successful work was this uh, this report i wrote with my colleague Bertrand Renault called uh, cities without land market uh, which was eventually published in the Journal of Urban Economics, where we f I found that the in Russian cities the density increase with distance from the center, and it's entirely due to first the land belongs to the government, so you cannot recycle it. You know, if you have a factory in the center, which was established in the 19th century, center of Moscow, and you produce shoes, let's say there. You like, as a as a director of the factory, you like to move it in a suburb where you will have more land, and more modern machinery. Uh, in our system, the value of the land will pay largely for moving the factory. You know, the the owner of the factory say, I, I I you know I sell the land and with that. But in the Soviet system, the land belonged to the people. So you cannot sell the land. You have to request the government to move your factory. You, you have to make a case saying, well, I'm producing 10,000 shoes a day and I need so many trucks. They cannot access where I am. I would like to move to the suburbs. And so to the government, this is a cost. You know, it's not, there is no, uh, the productivity, 
because the price are not used, you know, the, the price of the shoes you sell have nothing to do with the, with the input. Uh, you cannot even use productivity as an argument for moving. So, so the government will probably not, not uh, do, you know, not move your factories. So you end up with factories, very often then you, you stop producing there, you try to manage to, uh, to have another piece of land somewhere, but uh, the factory is still there because there's no way uh, you can sell it or, you know, or use it differently. So you will use it, you say, well, you will store maybe building materials on it because it belongs to the, you know, the, the land use. I mean, it's a completely vicious system when you think mm. of it. But officially, of course, for a planner, if I remember my time at the Col de Bozar as a planner, it's a paradise because uh, cost is not, you know, you don't have to cost the land cost. Uh, you just, <coughs> you just have norms. <coughs> but of course, you never build things in the, in the right way, in the right position. Well, I think there was an example from your book too. I mean, the heuristic that was used for uh, that was in China, of, of China, China, yeah. So China, right. yeah, yeah, China uh, had the same system, eh? except that they were more decentralized a bit uh, than the Russian were. But say, so if if land has no price, what should be the density of residential area? You know, hmm. how many houses do you put? So, so they, they you have you know, especially Marxism is supposed to be scientific. So you have to find a formula, you know, which appear rational. So they found that one hour of sun for every apartment uh, at the winter solstice, you know, in the, uh, uh, December 22, uh, every apartment should have one hour of sun. Hmm. So, so that uh, if you, you know, in China at the time, they could not afford uh, lift, you know, elevators. So, so that we, and they had uh, up to five story walk up. So that's decide, you know, in fact, the, the latitude entirely determined the, the densities of residential area. Whether mm -hmm. you are in Beijing at the same latitude in a small town in Mongolia, uh, Indian Mongolia, you, you will have ex officially exactly the same density as in the center of Beijing. And, but if you are in the south, uh, the density will be higher because uh, the sun will be, uh, you know, higher in the uh, in the sky. You know, you have more sun, so you can. Uh, I wonder if you could <laughs> if you could find any evidence. Yeah, you know, I don't know how long this policy was in place, but I wonder if you could find any long term evidence of of efficiency benefits from that. That you know, in in, in southern Chinese cities, they they just allowed for a much higher level of density, so you get some of these urban benefits that you maybe don't get at the higher level. Right, yes. I, you know, I, to be sure that, I mean, I knew that was the case because I work, you know, when I work in China for the bank, we, we were investing in land development. So, so I knew these rules, but I knew also that the, the, the farther you get from Beijing, the more you cheat a little on the rules. And in fact, the densities as you go south, you know, I documented it in the book, just maybe anecdotically by, taking a Google map measuring thing on Google map. And I, I thought that when you are close to Beijing, you strictly follow the rule of the one hour of sun. And when you go south, you cheat a little. I mean, you still do it, but so the density are higher. So you see, if we, hmm. we apply that to the United States, uh, the 
their stay in New York would be less than uh, than in Houston, for instance, mm. because right. of the the height of the sun, you know. The... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, but but these are the types and of, of course it's a com it's a completely you know in a way uh, people cannot argue say well one hour sun yes it's a minimum it's not a bad thing but in a modern city it doesn't mean anything it will be at uh, at noon where nobody is home anyway uh, you know it's uh, the heating system now in a in a city like Beijing is not dependent on the sun thanks God mm. and. Uh, you know, in uh, in summer, it may not be a good thing to be uh, in this. I mean, so so it's better to to have a better infrastructure and to allow people to build wherever you know, even if you are on the north, something like that. Well, and just give people choices about those trade-offs, right? Yes, um, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then there, there's no choice. So so all the public building, you know, what they call the downway uh, housing, that means the the, the housing which belong to the enterprise were built by the enterprise for their workers are built exactly the same way you know exactly mm -hmm. the same way right but, but china's transitioned quite a bit more toward markets in in yes in yes distribution of housing right very quickly uh, one of the reason was that uh, uh deng shopping among other things uh told them that they uh, the land you know the land belonged to the people but the right to use it could be auctioned and so to reproduce a market that way and it happened that the mayors of cities uh, they didn't have uh, you know they, di they didn't have a, uh, a property tax so their only resources was to sell land use right to enterprise and to housing and very quickly they understood location you know the, the the cost of location the price of location so that's why my contention that many uh, mayors in china understand markets especially real estate markets much better than american mayors including uh, our former mayor de blasio who i think didn't understand market very well uh, so it's, it seems very paradoxical that a, a member of the Communist Party understands market better, but it, it comes again from using markets to, to mobilize resources. They, they, they understand it very well. Now, it, by the way, it's not a very good thing that the only resource of, of a town, of a city, is by selling land use rights. I mean, uh, initially you have to do it, but say, uh, they should have introduced property tax long ago, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to to or other type of taxes uh, in order to to uh, feed the city. But I think so. In Beijing, the bureaucrats do not necessarily understand market well, but at the local level, yes, the mayors do. I assume. Well, I think this is this is partly what's gone wrong in a place like California, where because of things like Prop Thirteen. Property taxes yeah. aren't necessarily as large a share of public revenue as they are in other places. So that's right. Yes, there's yeah. maybe less incentive to facilitate development that that would command high property taxes. Exactly. Yeah, it it might end up with a, a net cost in a way. Development become costly. Right. Uh, you know, instead of being an advantage. Yes. 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 Well, that, that's exactly. something that coming coming out of your work, I'm always struck. You know, just how little land prices seem to figure into. U.S. planning discourse. I mean, I, I you know, I don't right, think yeah. 
maybe I'm I'm overgeneralizing, but I think many planners probably wouldn't know what what the land price well, range know, or distribution uh, is. Absolutely, and and when they see land prices raising somewhere, they always use the word speculation. You know, them. Mm. so that spec they do not explain it. You know, because speculation, yes, it does exist, but it means that at the same time you buy, at the same time you sell. If not, you are not a speculator. And right. and they they don't. You know, in a way, for me, when I hear planner use the word speculator, it's. Uh, it's like somebody using sorcery to explain why he gets sick or something like that. You know, they, you know, in the Middle Ages, people could not understand certain things, so they they uh, they, they thought it was witchcraft. You know, which explained a lot of things. And and uh, speculation is a witchcraft of planner now. You know, they, they so they so then they 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 don't feel responsible for it. You know, mm. they don't feel that they have. They have constrained the supply of land so much that indeed, if you have land, you are going to make a lot of money on it. And yeah, so you, yeah. you create the speculator by creating the shortage. But if uh, you know, because there are very, very few cities in the world, I, I one or two in, in Latin America, I remember once, but uh, have, a, have a monopolist on land. You know, land is usually well distributed. You know, it's a, you do not have a, a monopolist who control entirely the market for land. It's not true. Yeah, well, I, 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 that's a really interesting point that sort of, I think dismissing it as, oh, it's all speculation. I think it delegitimizes yeah. the use of the information that's being communicated that, that about land right, prices. Yes, that's the, right, Because yes. of course, oh, it's just speculation that we don't, we don't have anything to learn from right, it. But, yes, yes, yes. You know, I mean, the, the speculation is this like knowledge creation process. People are trying to figure out what is the correct price of, this parcel of land and right, that's yes, based on yeah. how much demand we think there is for it. Um, yes. Right. Yeah. I, I want to ask another question about this. Uh, so, you know, I think land value taxes have come back into vogue among some, you know, the, the George's thought, I wonder if you, if you have thoughts on land value taxation. Well, I, I think uh, what I, I don't agree with is to, to consider that any increase in urban value, should automatically get back to the state because then you will end up with the situation in the soviet union where you create no incentive to recycle land from the the current user you know if uh, uh, let's say for instance i'm living in a house here and uh, i'm contemplating to retire and uh, if i sell my house at at uh, you know with a capital gain that you know I, I will have because i've been there 20 years i can live very well in florida in uh, you know somewhere <laughs> uh, no no intention here it's just a story uh, and uh, but say imagine that you say the capital gain on your house after all you did you know do not come from you, you your house has stayed the same on 20 years so it goes entirely to the state as a you know it's a uh, then then I will stay put you know I don't have enough money to to move to to Florida I will stay put in my house here and 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 it's not so optimum for me you know um, I'm not active anymore in New York or anything I don't need to live there so I think that you will if you have a, a entire confiscation of the capital gain on land, you will end up with uh, the story of the Soviet Union. Uh, 
uh, although you 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 still have a market on land, but say if the if the profit of the pre-value doesn't get to the current user, and in the market economy, it's a current user would decide to move or not to move, then this this person will not move. If you confiscate the fifty percent of it, you may still have the same result. So so you have to be very careful when you say value capture. You know that mm. that assuming that yes, but you know. So I think you you have to be very careful about that. Now, I'm all for property tax and maybe property tax based on the value of land rather than the value of the property. I think that would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, because then if your house is uh, uh, underbuilt, then you will have a, a big incentive to, to build it, you know, uh, higher, you know, that, uh, rather than being taxed for what you build on it. So I think that uh, if you could establish in a city a price for land which correspond to the optimum, uh, you know, the best and higher use of land, in a, you know, you will see parking lot disappear very quickly, uh, for instance, you know, mm. uh, maybe replaced by by underground parking lots, but, but say, uh, parking lots without building on top of it in Manhattan is rather striking, you know, in a way. And uh, it's because the tax is not on the uh, on the land. The tax is on on the, the building. Yeah, I think that's what the the a lot of the land value tax folks have in mind is that right. You know, a a, a pure property tax somewhat disincentivizes you to improve the land because we're taxing the yes, land and right, the improvements. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. land value tax would just tax the value of the land. Um, and I think you're I think you're correct that it would incentivize folks to to. Yeah. to sell in context where they're not using potentially the property to its highest value you know but I think you see that that but that's different from uh, value capture on capital gain yeah yeah right you see that's that's uh, that uh, another thing too which I think is very bad and and was a problem in India for a long time and is still is to have a very high tax on transaction you know hmm. the uh, in India there was a, a consensus that if land price increase, it's because there are too many transactions. They say everybody who sell land wants to at least make 20% compared to... So so if you have uh, three persons selling land, uh, you know, in the same year, then the, the value of land will increase more. So so they put a, uh, a tax on transaction, a high tax on transaction, to prevent too many transactions. Mm -hmm. And that's terrible because, of course. Well, I mean, isn't that just getting causation flipped here, right? So, like, right, I mean, yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, values are going up, so more people want to sell. So they're just I, again, it's it's people who do not understand market at all. You know, who think mm -hmm. that it's it's a seller who decide the value of his land. You know, it's not the seller who decide the value; it's the market. You know, you need you need a buyer, uh, and uh, so or you know, it's assumed there is a monopoly, but there are no monopoly. They cannot. Uh, you know, so so it's a yeah, it's it's a uh, you know you have to to make transaction as easy as possible, and uh, therefore you should not tax transaction, and you should be very careful. I think when you tax capital gain on land, to mm. because if not, you will freeze land in its current use. Yes. Um... 
Right. I think you have to be very careful about, about how you design some of these rules to not get the incentives yeah. misaligned. I, I'm kind of and curious, actually. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yep. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to, uh, you know, change gears a little bit here. I'm kind of curious, you know, is there anything that you maybe have changed your mind on or that your, your thinking has evolved on since writing the books? I mean, the book's been out, what, like four, four or five years now? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, the, the pandemic, you know, if uh, I had written the book after the pandemic, I would have taken a bit more seriously than I do uh, the uh, working from home, you know, that I would have been, you know, my attitude now is that we really don't know. We have to monitor very carefully what is happening. And it's possible that we may have different organization of cities or work, but we should not plan for it. We shouldn't plan to say, well, everybody's going to work from home. Uh, we don't need transit anymore. We don't need, you know, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think that we have to monitor very carefully what is happening and adjust our, and what it means too is that we should have even more flexibility in our regulations. Imagine that um, a lot of people start working from home. Um, you know, especially around New York, for instance, or, or go to the office only once a week, for instance. Uh, it will mean probably they, they will need to meet people where they are. You know, they, they cannot stay home and just watch television or be on Zoom. So, so that will mean more, more amenities, more commerce, more meeting place in cities like Glen Rock or Ridgewood or whatever. You know. And right now, the zoning will not allow it. Mm. Uh, you know this. So you need more flexibility to see what what happened. If you have this rigidity built in, although the people land use change, it may paralyze it. You know, it's a straight jacket which do not allow to observe. Again, I get back to my principle that it it is the people who decide where to live and where to work. And its enterprise will also decide that. And this is what makes the city efficient. The infrastructure and the amenities have to follow this movement. They cannot mm -hmm. precede it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, it would be absurd to say, oh, we are going to allow more bakery in Glen Rock because people are, are, are staying home, uh, you know, they don't go to New York anymore. That would be absurd. You have just to say, we have to the flexibility. You don't need to plan this. You have to the flexibility in case this is the way it works. Right. I mean, I, it, you need even more flexibility on land use. I mean, for sure, that's been something that I think a lot of cities are dealing with now. I've, you know, it's funny on, I, I was working with a, with a, a co-author, Olivia Gonzalez, we were working on our paper on home-based businesses, home-based business regulation, and it comes out in March of 2020. Uh, and I say to her, you know, I'm like, this is the worst news cycle we could have released this report into. It's going to get no coverage. Yeah. You know, um, no one's going to care about this amid this whole pandemic. And she said to me, oh, no, exactly the opposite, right? You know, this is, everyone yes. is now going to start working from home and they're going to be much yeah. more interested in this issue. And um, now many I think what, what happened was many rules that maybe previously weren't binding suddenly became binding constraints on things that people right, actually yeah. wanted to do. And every city and <coughs> yeah. state in the country starts scrambling, you know, yeah. how do we amend yeah. these codes? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm curious exactly. looking forward. I mean, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but some of the big planning challenges 
going forward that are that are on your mind. I'm wondering if if you know looking up at cities and let's say both in the U.S. and abroad over the next 10, 15, 20 years. What do you what are, you, what are the things that you think planners are not paying sufficient attention to? I think that the cities which are still growing very fast, you know, and probably in Africa and Asia, and then the cities of Europe and possibly North America, uh, which will lose population, you know, depending, and everything depends on our attitude to our migration. And at this moment, the debate on migration for most people is either you, you are compassionate or you are not compassionate. It's, you know, yes, it's very nice to be compassionate, but in Europe, uh, managed migration is a matter of survival. You know, again, I take the example of the city of Toyama in, in Japan, and uh, we do not have a solution for a city which is losing population, and we, especially with an aging population. You know, a welfare state with an aging population is doomed. Uh, and you know, the more it's welfare, the more the young people have to be taxed to pay for the old, the more they will emigrate to a place where they don't, they are not taxed that much. So, so that will ex, you know exacerbate. So, so we have to look at now migration. How it is managed, I don't know. There, there are some models like, say, Singapore or, or the Gulf, uh, you know, the country bringing people on contract. I don't think it's a good thing because people who are on contract have no, uh, you know, they, they, have, they have no stake in the city, really. They are there for five years. After five years, they have to go back. I think you have to integrate the citizen, you know. Uh, you cannot have a class which is just on contract and, uh, uh, you know, a large part of the population on contract. So I think yeah. that you have to integrate the people and to integrate people from, uh, you know, different culture, they don't have to change their culture, but they have to follow some norms. Uh, and I think that the country which bring migrants have to spend money to be sure that those norms are well understood by the people who are migrating there, hmm. including, by the way, uh, tolerance toward, you know, different culture, religion, morris, and things like that. Well, uh, you raised it, uh, you raised Africa, and I mean that's you know we haven't talked about that so far, but in terms of parts of the world where we're going to see the most city formation and the most rapidly growing cities, right? It presumably, would yes. be sub-Saharan Africa, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, so the question for them will be, do they manage <coughs> to build those cities? You know, again, not a well-oiled machine like Copenhagen, but at least livable, you know, where, where they, they can achieve a minimum of productivity. Or is it so hopeless that <coughs> if you are a young guy for, or girl from Bamako, you feel that Bamako will remain unproductive for you for a long time, and you have better just move right away to Copenhagen. Mm. You know, right. and, and, and where Copenhagen, again, if, if you move there, your productivity is multiplied by 10 right away. Mm. Uh, you know, so, so that's a question. And um, I, I think that because of the massive migration, you know, it's it's so important that the African themselves manage to 
to be successful in their organization. I I've been reading some stuff. I mean, I'm you know I'm not very familiar with Africa, unfortunately, except South Africa, and and um, I've been reading a lot about uh, you know <coughs> Nigeria and all the the West Coast developing into one mega city. You know, <laughs> but that will require that will require infrastructure. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, so far <coughs> the you know. The, <coughs> the African country have not been very good at developing infrastructure. Hmm. And where the Asian have, you know, the, the Asian country have been successful in developing infrastructure. So, yeah. so and then especially across, you know, in the, this case, basically, uh, I remember a study, what uh, rather convincing, uh, talking about, you know, a, a linear city from Lagos to, uh, to Cote d'Ivoire, to Abidjan, and uh, they were showing the, the population. I mean, it, yes, it looks like cluster city in Asia, except that you will need an infrastructure across border and also to have the, to have a, a, a free exchange of goods and people uh, across three or four borders, five borders, I think, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is unfortunately yeah. not happening yet. So, so then the only only solution would be migration. Well, and I think this is a planning challenge at various scales is yeah. the jurisdiction that needs to do the planning does not reflect the actual extent of the labor market that right, sets yes, the, yes, the extent right, of the yeah, city, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and also for European cities, they don't realize what it is to have an aging population. Mm -hmm. And it's coming to them very soon. You know, mm -hmm. and and especially with uh, with the benefit that old people receive. I mean, it's uh, uh, without migration, it's unworkable. Mm. Well, on that note, I think we could probably talk for another three hours. Yes, and yes. A certain segment of the audience would probably like that, but uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think I think your work has been hugely inspiring, uh, and 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 is is forcing a lot of planners to rethink how they approach their work. And of course, with huge implications for, for housing affordability, um, you know, so much of the, so much of the book is about the global South or developing world. But, um, you know, to my mind, there are a ton of lessons there for, uh, the U S context where, you know, yeah. it's a developed country, but we are still, our cities are still growing very rapidly. Yeah. We do have these huge metropolitan labor markets that, that require much more serious thinking than I think we have today. So right, thanks yeah. for your work and, and thanks for chatting with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.